Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Editorial. Right, it's the new series brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. I will be your host for this episode, Ryan Barakovich, and I'm joined by somebody who's been on many episodes of this show in the past. He requires no introduction at this point. He is the artistic director, founding artistic director of Dandelion Theater. I guess this is an introduction you're getting at this point. But yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, we're happy to have you on the show. Max Ackerman, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So this is going to be an interesting episode. I'll put all of this out at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, how to even begin. So we're taking advantage of this new editorial format that we've recently introduced on the show to have conversations about various topics that concern the theater community, both here in Toronto and elsewhere in the world that maybe aren't necessarily prompted by a specific production like our reviews are or are not necessarily about the individual identity and work of the person in question like our interviews are you after all were the one of the very first people we interviewed on the cup interviews but we we just want to give ourselves a space to talk about a topic that we're interested in that we had our roundtable format where we used to bring in a lot of different people with various perspectives but those were getting difficult to coordinate and so we're doing this now with just one guest and we'll have sharing our thoughts and opinions about this. So the clickbaity title that we may or may not go with for this episode <laughs> is Must Shylock Be a Jew? But personally, I've been referring to this episode as Operation Shylock with the Philip Roth inspired title in my head. I don't yeah. think we should call it that because then people who are interested in that book will find this episode and be very disappointed when it's not about that. Or maybe, <laughs> or maybe you should draw them in. That's the audience you want. Draw man. them in. Yeah, Philip Roth fans. Yeah. This episode's for you. Trick them. <laughs> but yeah. essentially, this is an episode that has been prompted by a variety of previous episodes we've done on the Cup. One of them is an episode that you were on in which we reviewed the Paula Vogel play Indecent. And we had a lot of conversations about, yes. you know, Jews playing Jews, casting, identity, all of these ideas, rep representation and Jewishness in particular. And you had a lot of interesting thoughts in there, ones that I find very compelling and want to hear more about. Ones that I also disagree with, as we did on that panel. And as you'll find, if you listen to some other episodes of this show, are clearly still in my head because Mac and I, Mackenzie Horner, my co-producer of this show, did a deuce of episodes about various documentaries about Fiddler on the Roof. And we kept coming back to that discussion mm -hmm. that you had raised in the Indecent episode. And yeah. there was a recent, well, I guess recent, almost a year ago now, a production of The Merchant of Venice, where a lot of these same ideas came up again. And I got very raw and personal, I suppose, and unpacking my own complicated relationship with that play, as we tend to do. Arms um, were thrown. Yeah. Punches were landed, you know. It well, happens. And this is the thing. This is sensitive subject matter. And I think, you know, totally. you and I are the ideal people to have this conversation. We are both Jews. There's a couple of Jews, man. A couple of Jewish theater artists in Toronto who disagree yeah. about a lot, <laughs> agree about some things, and we disagree about others. And I want to make this clear yeah. at the beginning that this isn't a debate. This isn't, you know, I don't want to approach yeah, this yeah. as a debate. We might disagree and it might come to some fisticuffs, but it's really just about... <laughs> two friends with different perspectives having an amicable discussion about their disagreements and we'll see and i that i mean i think that is like the most quintessentially jewish part of this discussion is it's, that like you know there's no right answer to this question it, it's a really really complicated question for a lot of reasons and you can reach you know various different 
you know, outcomes of this, just depending on who you are and where you are in the world. And it is part of the reason that it's so fascinating. It's also part of the reason that it's so contentious as well. Yeah, this is going to be a very Talmudic discussion. You can say we are putting thoughts into dialogue, yeah. like layers, <laughs> yeah. layers of commentary yeah. on other productions, on other episodes yeah. of this very podcast. It's going to be fun. I hope it. I hope we have a good time with this. But before we get into it, I have to do our classic ritualistic icebreaker. What is in your cup today? In my cup today is just water, the elixir of life, straight from the stone that Moses broke. Yeah, I've been having some throat issues, and so I'm trying to drink a lot of water. But it's delicious. Sounds great. I too have water in my cup because I just already had my morning coffee and didn't want to get too jittery before this. But I am drinking it out of right right now. I'm actually, I'm not in my apartment in Toronto. I'm with Jill's family in Windsor for the week. And her brother went to California Law School, California Western Law School. And in the spirit of the quality of mercy and the climactic courtroom scene I'm using is, you know, the way law school ought to be mug. So yeah, if we can live up to that. Yeah, I hope so. Probably not, but I. But it's a nice goal day. For... We will be very judicious about this, I'm sure, in every yeah. sense of the word. There you go. Off to a great start. All right. So the topic at hand <laughs> is representation of Jews, mostly in theater, and you know, around ideas of writing and casting and performance. And I really want to just start by calling us all the way back to that episode we did reviewing Indecent. And if you recall the arguments you were making in the back half of that episode, maybe just let's begin by having you reiterate some of what those were. I don't recall specifically what I had said about Indecent, but I will say that my arguments have not changed about this, which is basically just that, like, I think in a culture and in kind of time period where we're talking about representation a lot and representation has really jumped to the forefront of you know, our, a lot of our kind of political and social discussions around how theater should be performed. It's not entirely fair to leave Jews out of that conversation, which I think Jews are often left out of that conversation, specifically in circumstances when the story itself revolves around a cultural, you know, milieu that is really specific to Jews. So, I mean, in Indecent, that story is a Jewish story, right? It's about a very famous Yiddish play that was performed almost exclusively by Jews. And there's a whole, I think one of the points I made in that episode is that there's actually a whole scene in that play where the characters discuss how silly it is to fire the Jewish actor and hire this kind of, you know, I I don't want to I think they call her a shiksa in the play. So I'll use the term shiksa, but like, you know, to hire a, a, a Gentile actor to play that part when she has no real cultural uh, understanding of what goes into that part. And obviously it's an incredibly complicated issue for lots of reasons, but which we I'm sure we'll get into. But I think like my views around this are basically that when the story revolves around something that is really culturally specific, it's important to have actors that are informed to that kind of culturally specific moment because it lends itself to better storytelling, I think. Like at the end of the day, that's what we do. We want to make the best story possible. And we, in theater, people love to talk about truth and authenticity, whatever that means. But like, I think 
if that's what we want to commit ourselves to, then there has to be this discussion of like, okay, well, who knows about this, you know, better than anyone. It's the person that's lived it. And so I think Indecent is a really good example of that. And they did, I mean, I think that almost their whole company was Jewish when they did it on Broadway. And I, did you see it in Toronto? I right? didn't wind up seeing the Toronto production. I had, if I said back in that. It episode, was awesome. I, I mean, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was basically the same. But it, I, I figured it would. I said back in that episode, I actually had tickets to see it for like May of 2020, which didn't right. happen because of COVID. And then right. I, yeah, by the time it came to Toronto, after having seen it on Broadway HD, I felt like I think it's going to be pretty much exactly this and opted not to see it just for yeah. the prices they charge for Mervish. I already used my credit that I got for the refund at that point. So it just didn't feel right. essential to get back into it, but I kind of maybe do regret that because I think it is a show that really I'll tell you, to the live experience. It does. And I mean, there's a few things about that show that just like seeing it live, it is really powerful. I love that show. I mean, it's, I think it's such a great story. And I also like, it's, it's just a wonderful play and they blocked it really, really well. But I will say like, just based on what we're talking about, there are, there are a few things that I think are really useful about that show, especially in the conversation of kind of Jewish representation in theater. And first of all, it's not trauma porn, which is something that I think, you know, it's a real risk that like so much Jewish content is about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And the Holocaust is a part of the show. And they there are definitely scenes that take place within the Holocaust, but it's never the focus. And that is really important, I think, in making Indecent stand out. But also, I'll tell you, man, I was in tears. Like, by the end of it, seeing it live, mm -hmm. that rain scene, when they perform it in Yiddish, which I don't speak, but hearing, like, it is just, it is so extraordinary. And, and it really does speak to the power of live theater. I mean, watching it in, watching it on a screen is wonderful. And, like, I would say, you know, to anyone listening, if you have that opportunity, watch it, because it's a great play. But seeing it in person is just, like, it really transports you. Like, it's an incredible scene, first of all. And just in the context of, like, technically what they've done with the dust and then the rain falls and washes it all away. Like, it's just, a, it's an exceptional piece of theater. And I, I think really speaks to, like, it just is so impactful. I like hearing that language and seeing Jewish actors play these fundamental Jewish characters. You know, it's amazing. It's really amazing. Yeah, agreed. I'm sorry I missed it. So I guess to just pick up a lot of these threads that you're putting down here. Yeah, these questions about authenticity yeah. is really what we're circling around with this. And yeah. it's funny, we've been planning on doing an episode like this as a roundtable prior to the new editorial format, just as a roundtable for a long time with the title being very Hamiltonian inspired. Who tells your story would have been the title of that. Right, right, right. And it would have been about we would have like uh, at least one black artist, one Asian artist, one indigenous mm -hmm. artist, and probably would have had you on to bring Judaism into this discussion. Yeah, yeah. Because absolutely. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it does sometimes get like left out of these, and we, I think there's a lot of interesting reasons why that might be the case. But at the end of the day, the questions that I guess I come to in this is why do does Judaism get left out? Is there maybe a good reason why it would? And 
I think it comes down to something that you mentioned in that diatribe you did on Indecent back in that episode where <laughs> you used a word that I keep coming back to in my mind. I, it's not really a framework I'd ever applied to thinking through these things before, but you referred to something like this as Jew face when... Uh, oh, yeah. let's talk about Jew face. I, want, I love this. Yeah, I, I want to talk about Jew face. And unfortunately, in all of those other episodes, I've just been with Mackenzie Horner or Jillian Robinson, people who... Yeah. aren't really able to voice their own opinion on it, rightfully so, but you and I yeah, yeah. will talk about Jewface right now. Fantastic. What yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, I just think, like, it's such a... You know, e even in auditions, it's such a instinct. It's a really weird thing. Actually, you know what? I'm, I'll tell you a story that, like, just makes me laugh every time. I was, I was doing a production of Much Ado About Nothing uh, a year or so ago. will not mention the company or the director, but it was a very, it's a moment that I think is absolutely hilarious where I was cast as, I, like my, in my head, I want to say Rabbi Francis. It's Friar Francis. But I had made the joke that the director had cast like a super Jewish guy to play the reverend, to play the friar. And I was joking that, that I was going to play him as a rabbi. And the director goes, well, as long as you don't play him with a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> and I was like, are you under the impression that all, all Jews come <laughs> from Brooklyn? And I think there is this really weird thing. Like, it's a kind of silly moment, but I think there is this really weird thing where, like, I see in auditions, too, for Jewish characters. And this is not exclusive to Gentile actors, but, like, people will like do a voice like there, there's actually like when those lines are written a certain way you get that people fall into a certain usually very Ashkenazi kind of impression of a Jewish character and I think it happens a lot you know another I think good example of this and kind of I would say particularly egregious example of this was I don't know if you saw Grand Hotel when they did it at Shaw this would have been like years back now like probably like six or seven years back but it was the same thing where there's this jewish character and he did this kind of like voice where he's like the he's doing the kind of ashkenazi immigrant and you know what i mean like it's it pops up and i think it's really hard in some contexts you know you look at something like the dybbuk or fiddler on the roof which are set in shtetls and it's really hard to avoid that because you're trying to be culturally specific. You're trying to understand the dialect. But at the same time, you're kind of playing into this stereotype that is not always super accurate. And the other thing is, I think that what and I think it's an important point to make, especially early on, is that when we talk about Jew face, so often it's people imitating Ashkenazi Jews. And I, I probably should clarify that term, an Ashkenazi Jew, Ryan and I are both Ashkenazi as a Jew from generally Eastern Europe. You know, my family's from Ukraine, the, from Ukraine and, you know, whether it's Lithuania or Poland or Russia, those are Ashkenazi Jews. There's Sephardic Jews who are from North Africa and then Mizrahi Jews who are from the Middle East, which are kind of the three major kind of sub-ethnic groups that Jews fall into. But there's Jews from all over the world and there's converts and you know, Jews don't have, Jews are not a monolith. And I think when we fall into this trap of being like, 
hey, you know, we're here, we're like doing our little Jewish bit. Like it, it falls into this kind of very Ashkenazi centric understanding of Jews. And Ashkenazi Jews also, you know, are the white Jews, right? Like we're the European Jews. And so I think it's a, it skews the discussion a certain way when in reality, like the Jews are an incredibly diverse ethnic group, which is a kind of almost an oxymoron, but yeah. Well, I'll start with that. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so many thoughts firing in my head in relation yeah. to that. Thank you for provoking all of this. I guess yeah. it's interesting because when we use, I think, a politically charged term like Jew face, we are hearkening upon traditions of black face, red face, yellow face sure. in order to contextualize what it is precisely that we see as problematic with these kinds of portrayals. Right. And it's interesting that you are specifically bringing it up about how the caricature that we associate with Jew face is specifically this Ashkenazi Brooklyn, for lack of a better word, approach. Right. No, it's true. But I guess the question then becomes... And also, to be fair, like, that's the Broadway Jew, what? right? Like, that's, those are the one those, that's like, in, in New York, those are the settlers, mm -hmm. right? Those are the people that would have, like, you know, it was Ashkenazi Jews. Not exclusively, but... That, those are Jews that kind of, you know, that settled in Brooklyn Heights, you know what I mean? Well, and then I guess the question becomes, because you have astutely pointed out that these are, by and large, the white Jews, the ones who are at least, you know, can identify as white, Ooh. or pass as white, or maybe even just are white, depending on how we want to conceptualize right. these racial categories. And it's for that reason precisely that I think I don't necessarily have a problem with the term Jew face, but wince a little when I hear it. Because to me, right. And this is something I said when we did our review of a production of Merchant of Venice that we'll talk about in a little bit. But the reason why I have a problem with a black, oh, sorry, a white actor taking a black role like Othello, for example, is because historically, that has been the case that white actors would play Othello in blackface, usually and treat it like a minstrel right. performance. And black actors have only shockingly recently reclaimed that role. And, yeah. uh, and in a lot of contexts, that is the ceiling of what black actors are told they are allowed to play in the Shakespeare pan. We are moving away from that in our sort of post-Hamilton age where you can have yeah. someone like Andre Sills play Coriolanus yeah. at Stratford and nobody bats an eye or people bat an right. eye probably, but it's not treated as a big deal. But yeah, yeah. to tell a black actor that no you're not getting cast as othello we got this white guy doing it that feels very egregious in right. ways that i don't think it is to me when we're dealing with a jewish character precisely for the reason that a jew could play antonio or bassanio very easily in the merchant of venice and nobody would right. say you're jewish you can't do that so cordoning off shylock as the right. this is the jewish character doesn't quite seem to fit the same template of ethical casting as it does with other races. I'm not saying that delegitimizes the claim of Jew face, but I think it complicates it in a way. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's not the same, right? Like, it's not the same discussion between a kind of visible minority and the less visible minority, right? And you're absolutely right that especially when it comes to Ashkenazi Jews, We've had the opportunity to play the roles that we want, but I would say we've had the opportunity to play the roles that we want as long as they're not, as long as we're not playing a Jew, right? 
Like, it's this idea of like, okay, if you're playing Antonio, you're playing Antonio, like you're playing an anti-Semite, basically, right? Like it's, or whatever. Like, I think that, once again, it's very complicated, but I would say, especially with something like Shylock, where the conversation is not just about playing a Jewish character, but about playing a character where, and like, this is why I'm glad you sent me that Anthony Schur and Patrick Stewart interview, because yeah, I think Anthony Schur... Oh, wait, sorry, David Touche. I, I, I could have sworn. That's crazy. Yeah, Anthony David Touche. Anthony Schur, also an incredibly Shylock. Yeah. In fact, I think he wrote a book called Playing Shylock, I didn't he? So. Yeah, I, I believe um, so. I have not read it myself. Just for context for anyone watching this, uh, this is a famous clip that maybe for those watching on YouTube, we'll put it in the top corner thing for you to click on. But it's a famous clip of the BBC show Playing Shakespeare, where Patrick Stewart and David Suchet sit down and talk about how they've both played Shylock and they have different approaches to the role. So, sorry, continue. Yeah, well, and I think that David Suchet puts it so brilliantly, which is that like, well, Patrick Stewart kind of says that, you know, Shylock's, I can't remember exactly the word he uses, but the, the kind of othering of Shylock, that the Judaism is kind of inconsequential to his otherness. That Shylock just exists as the alien. Shylock exists as other. And David Shea says, well, no, like, that's not true. And I, that it's that actually that it's Shylock's Jewishness that makes him other. Yeah. And it's a, I think it's a really interesting point that he makes. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but that Shylock is called by name something like five times in the play and called the Jew or Jew like 26 times. And so it's just this like, linguistically, it's inseparable from the character, right? And I just think that, you know, maybe it's this kind of emotional reaction that I have to it, but I have just always felt that if it's a question of dealing with specific kind of oppression, that it just like, I'm not saying, you know, you can't do it. Like, it's not like, it's true that it's not like a, a racial casting where, you know, certainly in today's day and age. And I mean, I wish it had come around sooner, but you know, if a white guy was to play Othello, we would be like, mm, that's, that ain't it. Like that, please do not do that. You know, Al Pacino plays a wonderful Shylock. Like Al Pacino plays a great Shylock. Patrick Stewart plays a great Shylock. But, you know, I just think when it comes to this question of authenticity, there's a great scene in Mel Brooks's remake of To Be or Not To Be, where the Jewish character in the movie speaks Shylock's famous speech, I am a Jew, to the person who's kind of pretending to be Hitler. And it's this incredible heartbreaking moment. And it is so, it's so indicative of how powerful that speech is when it has that kind of familiar weight to it that I just think that we're, it's actually, it's doing the story a disservice not to give it an actor who at least to some degree understands that very specific kind of cultural and ethnic significance. Does that make sense? It does. We will have a more, I think, robust in-depth depth discussion about Merchant in a minute, but there's a few other yeah, things yeah, that maybe yeah. just while we're still on the general Jew face of it all, which, and I understand yeah. how entwined these things are, that it's hard to bring up one without the other, because these are where we come from in a lot of these conversations. 
Yeah. I just, I guess, curious. Here's going to feel like a non sequitur, but I swear it's going somewhere. Did you see Fairview, the Jackie Sibley's jury play that was just at Cannes stage back in February? No, but I didn't. I was really disappointed to miss it, but I heard it was wonderful. It was. And it's interesting. I don't know how much you know about the play or how much our listeners know about the play. So I'll maybe go over what happens at the end of it. Spoilers for Fairview. Yes, it's not played. Spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> but that play, a lot of stuff happens leading up to this, but it essentially ends with one of the one of the black characters in this predominantly black cast breaking the fourth wall and requesting of the audience that so long as you are physically able to do so if you are white in the audience please stand up and sit on the stage make space in the audience for a black gaze essentially because it's very much a show about the ethics of spectatorship and panopticism and white consumption of black stories and so it it does this like really powerful moment where if you are white please stand up and you know get out of the audience and get into the spotlight basically and right. it's a very interesting play for a lot of reasons but i attended a virtual talk back that they did about the show and some interesting points were raised because the big question that people wanted to ask is what happened on nights not like mine when everyone was very respectful but Nights when somebody puts up a fight or resistance or doesn't want to go or makes a sting. Did that ever happen? What did you do as the actors? And there were two interesting instances that were raised on this talkback. One of them was a white passing indigenous person was kind of mm. sitting right there with the actor talking kind of in their face, sort of not necessarily intentionally, but making them feel bad for not getting up because outwardly they look very right. white. But, and also I recently attended another event, this, I don't know if it's the same person they were talking about, but a prominent indigenous Canadian theater artist was recently at it, talking about another event and they said that they had that experience of sitting in that show and feeling like they should get up and their friend like kind of grabbed them by the hand and said, don't you dare get up because this is not right, about right. you. And they right. chose not to, I won't name the person because it's not, you know, my place to do that in here, but so that that's just an interesting wrinkle in this that I think. But then yeah. the other instance that was mentioned in this talkback was that there were Jewish people in the audience who were like, well, I'm Jewish. I'm not white, right. therefore I won't get up. And I don't imagine that it was, a, you know, a Sephardic or Ethiopian Jew who was sitting in the audience. Yeah, I imagine yeah. it probably yeah. was, I would guess, an Ashkenazi person who outwardly does present white and we might even say is white but due to their jewishness felt that it wasn't their place to make space in the audience the way that the show was demanding i, I bring right. this up because i was curious you know knowing your views on all the things i imagine if you had been in the audience you probably would have gotten up but correct me if i'm wrong oh i would have gotten up for sure <laughs> yeah just because i don't want to you know i'm not trying to be that guy but i think it is a really important point i mean like i think the thing that you know i do feel and i want to say this sensitively but I, you know i do think that when it comes to these discussions around specific racial designations a lot of times our contemporary discussions often neglect to take into account the historical context behind them and one really important historical point 
that I think, especially when it comes to Jews, that I, I also just think a lot of people, especially in Canada, would not realize because there's not a lot of Jews in Canada and, and the, the Jewish presence in Canada is not the same as it is in some in, in places like in the United States, especially in somewhere like New York, where there are a lot of Jews there. Like it's that's a big community. Not to say that, that our community is not sizable in Toronto, but it's just different. And I think a lot of Canadians don't have the same familiarity with Jews and Jewish culture that that, you know, someone from New York, for example, would. But Jews have not always been white. Like, I think that's a really important point to make. And I'm, I'm, that's not to say that in today's day and age, I would not actively say I'm a white guy, and that my Jewishness and my skin color coexist, right? But that, like, for up until fairly recently, like, I would say probably, I, and Ryan, you probably know better than I do, but like the 80s, I want to say, like, Jews were not in, allowed into the same country clubs as white people, or Jews were not allowed, like into the same groups like it was just it was not a the these kind of social gathering places were restricted i mean they to to jewish people and that is part of the reason that jews especially in the united states had made such a significant name for themselves in the entertainment industry is because the entertainment industry was one of the few industries where jews could find success we weren't allowed it like you know i, I just uh, directed my high school students in waiting for lefty mm -hmm. clifford odets very famous jewish writer famous communist writer who ended up not being a very good communist <laughs> but uh, you know there's a scene in waiting for lefty where there's a doctor who gets fired because he's jewish you know and it's an important historical thing like it's just it's it's important to recognize that these th this racial language that we use especially around invisible minorities is very contemporary and there's a lot of historical context that i think often gets left out of those conversations and so i think this fairview moment is a really interesting and potentially very contentious moment. If you're saying, okay, everyone who's not black has to make room for the black gaze, then that's, you know, I think an easier, you know, kind of designation, but potentially more problematic, right? That, that it's, you know, in a conversation with friends of mine that are not white, you know, I would not be kind of the guy to be like, well, I'm not white either. There's a very funny bit in Kenya Barris's show, Black AF, where he has a Jewish assistant and he goes like, well, there's some parts of Belgium that I can't even walk through. And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> like, it's not the same conversation. Obviously, we're not having the same conversation of our Jews kind of do Jews hold the same place as black people or whatever it is, right? That's not, and it's not a productive conversation because I, it's also really important to to you know bring up that oppression suffering should not be a competitive sport right we're not right and, and we can often get into this thing of like well we had this and we had this but that's not what it's about it's that you know we encounter and deal with different forms of discrimination and oppression and to be clear like jews absolutely still 
deal with this stuff. I mean, anti-Semitic hate crimes are on the rise again. Like it's, you know, and the leading hate crime statistically in all the United States, like the, these, oh, now I'm getting competitive, but, uh, you know, I just think it's, I, I mean, like it totally makes sense to want to flip the script. And especially in Canada, and in the theater in general, I think when the conversation is so much about kind of teaching white audiences, like kind of, you know, I was talking to a theater artist who referred to this kind of theater as like didactic theater, which I think is a really good way of putting it, where it's about like, this is a period in this very specific kind of racial or ethnic groups history that you now need to learn about or whatever. And, and I think that is important to a degree. I don't know if it's necessarily the most interesting kind of theater, but I mean, if theater is about learning from each other, I think it's really important not to put your audience on the spot because then it feels like you're tricking them a little bit. And, you know, there's some times where that works, but I think that, like, I do still, yeah, I think we need to be sensitive about it. It's And listen, I'm coming at this from a very specific, you know, point of view, but I just, especially in a time when, like, we're writing grant applications and using every single facet and aspect of our identity to say, please give me money. You know, I just think it's so, you know, we've narrowed ourselves down to these, to such specific boxes that it, that in situations like that, it can backfire. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I I get what you're saying. And it is complicated. That's why we're having this complicated discussion about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. One last thing I want to come back to about the Jew face discussion before we maybe then zero in on Merchant in particular. This is a point that I raised in one of those episodes that I did with Mackenzie Horner reviewing. It was the documentary Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen, where once again, this conversation prompted by you came up, whether you realized it or not. (laughs) And I proposed this, what I called, I guess, the model thought experiment, where And I think now having heard what you said, I know what your answer would be, but I will not infer that and I'll flip it to you. Whereas let's say I, as a Jewish actor, get cast as model in a production of Fiddler on the Roof. And I'm Jewish. I, nobody would say that this role shouldn't go to you. Like it's, you know, even if you feel like that, you know, is the case that Jews must play these characters, no question there about me. But let's say, because I, you can tell me differently, some people do, but I don't personally feel that I present very Jewishly in my day-to-day life. Maybe some of my physical features give it away. I know my last name certainly does most often, but I don't necessarily yeah. feel like I I have particularly Jewish mannerisms. I could be wrong about that. But let's say right. in my portrayal of model, I do play up what I kind of understand as stereotypically Jewish mannerisms. I make him very nebishy. Am I sewing machine? I don't know. You get the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My question becomes, is that in other contexts, if a non-Jewish performer was doing that, we would categorically call that Jew face. 
but if I do it as a Jewish actor, does my own identity negate the possibility of that being problematic or are stereotypes of that kind categorically problematic regardless of who enacts them? That's a really, really good question. And I, you know, once again, I mean, I don't want to like cop out, but it's really complicated because I think that like on the one hand, you are coming into it with a kind of, even if you're not a practicing Jew religiously, you are coming into it with a certain understanding of the culture and significance of that role and who this person is and kind of like, you know, you would have if not family members and an understanding of kind of the sh the culture and significance of the shtetl and of the tailor and the shtetl and those kinds of things. That being said, I mean, a stereotype is a stereotype. Anyone can play a stereotype, you know, if you know, doesn't matter what the role is, if it's kind of culturally specific in a certain way from raising the sun to Kim's convenience, those roles can be played stereotypically. I mean, listen, I don't want to get too controversial, but I was going to say Kim's Convenience. I was just talking about this play because I love the play Kim's Convenience. Right. I think it's a wonderful play. I think it really, it really tackles a, an important issue, which is not a racial issue, which is the issue of gentrification in Toronto, but also gives us a really clear picture of a Korean family in, in, you know, in Toronto. The TV show does not, right? And the TV show is a really good example of how those that kind of script can be flipped and you can have people of a certain, you know, playing a culturally specific character turn into kind of a stereotype and, and it gets to, okay, well, is it well-directed? Is it well-written? All of these kinds of things. I would say like no one is free from making those kinds of mistakes. doesn't matter who you are, but it gets back to the idea of, pursuing a kind of a certain degree of truth and authenticity, right? That if you're playing model and model is like, is that kind of nebbishy Jewish guy, but that's not who you like, you're putting that on to the character. I would say it's probably not a very good performance. You know what I mean? That like, you know, if you're just playing model, like it doesn't matter if you're super connected to, you know, Judaism and this or that, like you're a Jew, like that's just, you can't escape that, right? Like that's, it's in your blood. And so if you just play model as, you know, Ryan, then I would say that's actually a, probably a more interesting depiction of the character. Now I understand that there is the tendency in Fiddler on the Roof specifically to really lean into the kind of, shall we say, shtetl core uh, of it all and, you know, play the accent and do the whole thing. But it's not like there's no rule that says you have to do that. So I, I would just say, like, I mean, once again, it's really tough. It's a really difficult question. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's it gets back to this kind of pursuit of pursuit of of a certain kind of truth in the character and I, I don't think that a, a gentile actor can't pull that off i just think that when it comes to culturally specific roles if that's the like you know everyone talks about this kind of pursuit of authenticity if that's the goal well then you know you're going to want to cast someone who has some tie i never lived in a shtetl but like i, I know what that you know like i have ancestors that came from 
you know, tiny villages in the Ukraine that don't exist anymore. You know what I mean? And like, I've, you know, we've heard stories and generation kind of generational stories and things like that have been passed on. And so there's just a little bit more of a cultural understanding there of just what that means. And I would also say that like, when you have that kind of connection to a role, you know, now we're getting into the kind of intangibles when it comes to acting, but when you have that kind of connection to a role, there's a pull, there's a desire to do that role justice in a certain way that like, you're not just doing it for you, you're doing it for the community, you're doing it for your people, you're doing it for those ancestors that came from there that like, the stakes just are raised a little bit, I think. And I think that is important to bring up because it's not just about the authenticity of the character, but it's about how, like, it's about how the actor actually approaches the role. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think I agree with most of what you're saying. I guess where there's a bit of a wrinkle for me is how to put this, I guess in my case, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself and you can feel very differently for yourself and every Jew watching might have their own different opinion. I, yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And to me, I think it's a matter of, <laughs> While, yes, my people historically come from shtetls, I don't personally feel that I can claim an authentic connection to that. And maybe because, like, of the various, like, you know, degrees of generational distance placed between me and it in some mm. cases. But to me, I, and this was a conversation that was also had on, I think, that second Fiddler episode we did. But... Right. I look at something like Fiddler on the Roof as the as precisely my frame of reference for what a shtetl looks like. And that's right. problematic because Fiddler on the Roof is a very authentically, lovingly recreated shtetl, but it is, at the end of the day, a simulacra of a shtetl. And Yeah, of course. And we live in this, you know, post-memory age where yeah, it's we interface with our histories more through images and representations than with any actual living memory. And it's unavoidable. But as a result of that, I feel that to me, it feels fake if I were to claim that because I come, my people come. Well, you from still got to do your research. I mean, do, like, you still, you know? Yeah, do the research. But it also, it's so funny that this is now coming up, but. It reminds me of another play by yeah. Jackie Sibley's Jury. We are proud to present. I don't know if you're familiar with that right. one as well, but yeah. but that's essentially about a group of six American actors, three white, three black, who are trying to do a play telling the story about the massacre of Namibian natives in South, like Southern Africa, by German colonists, right. and is considered the first genocide of the 20th century, and. One of mm. the threads that becomes very apparent while you're watching this play is being African-American, as half of the cast is, does not necessarily make them equipped to tell a story about African people who they may or may not have Ooh. any kind of direct lineage with. And there's a lot of other complicated reasons why that lineage would be occluded in their case in a way that is not in our case. But... Like one of the one of the main characters in that talks about how the impetus for the show was she was flipping through a book and saw a picture of a woman who reminded her of her grandmother. And that's how she felt this connection. Like, but that's a to me, and I think the play is making this argument, that's a flimsy basis upon to foster this kind of yeah. ethical connection. 
And I feel very much that way about, you know, my own heritage, this old country that I, you know, I've been lucky that on, I was obviously born in Canada. My, both my parents were born in Canada. Half of my grandparents were born in Canada. And to me, I think there's always this degree of falseness that I have a hard time claiming for myself. And maybe that makes me reticent about letting others claim it with such authority, even if they maybe have better justification for in their own reasoning. I don't know. Does that any of that make sense? Yeah, I... Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, like, I'm going to end up contradicting myself all the time because I do do think that it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, because I think it is a really interesting point that, and, you know, I, I, it is a good example because, you know, actors need to do their research. Like, that, that, like, it is acting, right? Like, I think that's the important you know, distinction that it's not life. It's not, it's, you're not kind of presenting something that is immediately true and relevant to your life as a, you know, 20 something, 30 something actor in Toronto, Ontario, right? Like it's, that being said, I think what it comes down to is, you know, what I had mentioned before, which is this connection, this idea of understanding that you have with someone, you know, whatever it is, centuries away, that because of this shared history, you can begin to approach the role from, I mean, and I think with Judaism specifically, it's a, it's an interesting kind of weird, I'm losing my words now, but it's a kind of weird almost dichotomy because on the one hand yes you're not immediately invested in the action that is happening with the setting of what you know the play is but uh, on the flip side of it judaism is all about tradition right like that's kind of the you know so much of our culture and our religion is about traditions that have been true for millennia and so even just in something like, you know, sunrise, sunset, that's a prayer. Like, I don't think that a lot of people recognize that is a prayer. Like, and I don't know if this is true for you, Ryan, but that's a prayer that my parents said every Friday night. Right? Like the, the core of that. So they didn't sing sunrise, sunset. That would have been a little on the nose, I think. But But the core of that, the text of that song is a prayer, you know, these ideas of tradition, I think, carry through whether you practice or don't, you have an understanding of the cultural significance of these traditions, the lighting of the Shabbos candles, right? Just things like that, that are still true, that are still, you know, relevant to Jews today. And whether or not you have a super deep connection to that it's a recognizable element that you can go, yes, I know that my grandparents do that, or I know, you know, whatever. There's this, <laughs> the flip side of that, and I'm going to argue with myself now, is that, you know, there's, yeah, there's this great, so growing up, what I suppose Gentiles would refer to as a godfather, Jews don't have godparents, but the person that would have been that for me he, his name was Jacques Kornberg. He was the head of Jewish studies at, 
and there's this great story he passed away very sadly a couple years ago and a couple years ago time really flies and there's this great story because he had a, a kind of mentee who's a young german woman not jewish but who had gotten her PhD in Jewish studies and was teaching a course on the Holocaust. And there was this guy in her class who was a survivor. And he thought that, you know, he would interrupt her constantly and tell, well, this is actually how it was. And it made it very difficult for her to teach the class. And he would say, like, what do I need to learn from some young German girl? And she took this problem to Jacques. And Jacques said, you know, it's important to remember two things here. Number one, you're the professor. Like, this is your class. You cannot let someone bulldoze you no matter what kind of expertise they have. Number two, he was probably an asshole before the Holocaust, too. Yes. And, you know, like, I think that it's really easy for this idea of cultural understanding to overshadow the work of research. Mm -hmm. But that being said, to kind of connect the two, I do think that they need to go hand in hand. If I were to play Shylock, that's not to say that I would not also be doing my research, but it is to say that like my Jewishness informs the role of Shylock in a way that, or Tevya or whoever, my Jewishness informs that role in a way that someone who is not Jewish would not have that insight. And I think that's kind of the... the the plateau of like these two things going hand in hand. But I do think that we've become a little distracted by the question of race and representation that we've lost a little bit that sense of like, well, like just because someone presents as, you know, black does not mean that they can necessarily play like, you know, every black character in existence that's that like same deal black people are not a monolith right like these racial groups are not monolithic that that everyone's experience is different and because you fit into a certain racial designation does not give you ultimate authority although most jews would like to assume that it does on you know on a cultural experience you know what i mean i do yeah and I think that segues us very well into Merchant in particular, because this is this mm. one very particular lightning rod of a case study where we can really unpack and put a lot of these yeah. ideas we've talked about a bit in theory into practice a little bit. And it's yeah. funny, I was, as I was re-listening to those earlier episodes that I've referenced already, there was a line in the Indecent panel that I had forgotten about when Mac, you know, Mackenzie Horder brought up, how Shakespeare wrote Merchant and he wasn't Jewish, he probably shouldn't have done that. And you chimed in and said, don't even get me started on that. Well, this is the space where I would like to, <laughs> I would like to get you started on that right here. Maybe not in a Paula Vogel review, but this is the space where I'm getting me started on that. <laughs> Let's do it. Talk okay, so this what is... Your, the... What's your relationship to Merchant? Let's start with it then. So this is a huge conversation and I'm not going to like go... It's so, okay, there's a number of really complicated things when it comes to merchant effects. First of all, it's really important to understand that Shakespeare almost certainly never met a Jewish person in his life. Yeah. The, what Merchant of Venice is, so there's two kind of, and there's a dear friend of mine who was in our production of Winter's Tale who taught me this, and I'm 
going to forget the specific details of it right now because I don't have my notes in front of me. But there's two kind of touchstones that Merchant of Venice is coming from in terms of the Jewish element. There was, and I'm like blanking on the name right now. There was a trial of a doctor, yeah, um, a Jewish piece. doctor. Thank you very much. Yeah, he was Queen Elizabeth. Oh, God, I'm doctor. sorry. <laughs> yeah, so Rodrigo Lopez, Correct. just for those unfamiliar, he was Queen Elizabeth's doctor, Queen Elizabeth I, we're dealing with Shakespeare's time, who was suspected of poisoning her, and he was tried and drawn and quartered. So right, and this was a very public trial, and there's a, we don't know for sure, but there's a strong chance that Shakespeare would have seen this trial and been certainly been familiar with this person. So that's one kind of facet. The other is Christopher Marlowe's The Jew of Malta, which is a an, an incredibly anti-Semitic play with a character who, you know, talks about how, how he likes to go poison wells and do all these terrible things. And Shakespeare sees this play, reads this play, and says, I can do that better, right? And Shakespeare, being the kind of consummate humanist that he is, writes this villainous Jewish character, but cannot help but give him one of the most remarkable pleas for humanity that has ever been written in the English language, in that speech, that those, what is it, 12 lines of, I am a Jew, right? And so there is no doubt that Shylock is not necessarily an accurate representation of a Jewish person. Sh Shylock is a caricature. That's true. That's in the writing of the play, right? That's in the creation of the play. The historical significance of A Merchant of Venice extends far beyond Shakespeare's time. Unsurprisingly, it was one of Hitler's favorite plays, you know, and this role of Shylock, and even just the name Shylock, has been taken and twisted and used in such a way that it is inevitable and inescapable that it be read as anti-Semitic. There's an important shift, and I, I want to say it's around World War II, but I might be mistaken about that. It might be earlier, where Jews start to perform the play of Merchant of Venice. And there's Yiddish translations of Merchant of Venice. And Jews start to reclaim this play and this character and lend a certain degree of humanity to Shylock so that Shylock stops being this anti-Semitic caricature. And that's why I think it's so crucial that today we understand that historical context when trying to, when presenting Merchant because it's, it is a play that has been used as propaganda in many ways for centuries, but that has also been reclaimed. And I would say, I mean, just as a director, there's two ways to do Merchant. There's two ways you can perform Merchant. The first way is as it was originally intended. It's a comedy. Right? That's one of the really weird things about Merchant of Venice is that it's a comedy. It's not very funny. There are moments of humor in it, but it's pretty dark, all things considered. And obviously, you know, important to, to remember when we talk about a comedy, we're not just talking about things that make us laugh, but we're talking about a play that follows the comic structure. So why does Merchant of Venice follow the comic structure? Well, at the end, Shylock is punished, right? That that's the resolution of the play, that Shylock gets his just desserts. 
and that, you know, the Portia and Bassanio can get married and all of that. Um, if we are to do it in that original way, it has to be an anti-Semitic caricature. And you can't do it any other way. It has to, like, Shylock has to be the villain of that play. The other way to do Merchant of Venice is to take it from being a comedy to being a tragedy. And to be pointed about the fact that Portia Bassanio and Antonio are racist. That, like, our heroes of the play are racist. And not just towards Shylock. You know, we have this whole scene where it's basically just Portia, like, mocking these guys from other places, right? The, the, her suitors. Yeah, it's a Morocco. And, right, exactly. So then it becomes, it goes from being the comedy of Antonio, the Merchant of Venice, to being the tragedy of Shylock, the Merchant of Venice, right? It changes the focus of the play. And there's a lot of Shakespeareans who would say that's an incorrect reading of the play, which... I mean, to be fair, it kind of is, but if we want to do that kind of, if we want to understand the play from a modern context, we have to understand that Portia Bassanio and Antonio are racist and anti-Semitic, that Shylock is not right in his kind of desire for revenge necessarily, but we have to understand where he's coming from, that these Gentile characters have come in taken his livelihood, mocked him, spit on him, beat him up, and then his daughter runs away with the Gentiles, well, kind of throwing her faith and her culture to the wind and saying, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just want to be a Christian. And understandably, Shylock goes, oy vey. You know what I mean? Like, he's, it's a very, and the final scene of that play is incredibly traumatic. I did, there, there was a, a pretty good production from the Globe Theater. Jonathan Price played Shylock and I'm trying to think of who Jonathan... He was in Game of Thrones. Yeah, he was the high Who And in Harry Potter, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I'm not that into Harry Potter myself. He's in The Two Popes. He's been... He's had a huge story career. Yeah, he's a wonderful actor. It's, and at the end of the play, they had it staged where he is... You know, he faces his judgment and he is forced to convert to Christianity. And he sings the Shema. And it was a beautiful moment and a very interesting contextual moment for the play. And sorry, for those that don't know, the Shema is a very important and significant Hebrew prayer that comes from the Torah. Um, and it just contextualizes the play. You know what I mean? Like it contextualizes the really horrible nature of what is done to Shylock despite the horrible request that Shylock makes. This is not to, you know, totally acquit Shylock, so to speak, of his villainy, but it is to understand the human element of the play a little bit more. And I, I would say that in doing Shakespeare justice in a modern context, understanding the human element is the thing. Like, that's what Shakespeare is about. Shakespeare is the, you know, the, to paraphrase Harold Bloom, the, the inventor of the human, right? Like, that's, you know, so that, anyway, that, I could go on and on, but that's kind of, I think, yeah, the basic, on. you know, I'm glad I you laid all of that out. I think that's all very helpful. Yeah. It's funny, every time I engage with these conversations, especially with Jewish friends, I feel a lot like, well, 
Have you seen Harry Kondabalu's 2017 documentary, The Problem with the Poo? No. Okay, so Harry Kondabalu, he's a, a comedian of South Asian origin, and he, in 2017, made like a, a Michael Moore-esque documentary about the character of a poo from The Simpsons and the problematic nature right. of this being the majority of white America's only encounter with South Asian people and how right. pretty much every young South Asian person from the late 80s onward has to grapple with the fact that a poo as a caricature is instrumentalized as something with which people are racist towards them using that in their language that you know quickie mark right quickie right again, right etc cetera, etc cetera. and so yes. he made this documentary where he just talked to a lot of people various south asian people in the entertainment industry it was framed around wanting to have a final showdown interview with hank azaria who voices the role and it never wound up happening but it there, there's a scene in that where cal penn of you know harold and kumar and various other you know designated survivor fame yes of course. Uh, Yes, Canadian, I think. I'm actually not sure about that, but that would be cool if he is. But Cal Penn is the only interviewee. <laughs> Cal Penn is the only interviewee in this documentary who actively dislikes The Simpsons. Everyone else, including Kondabalu himself, is working through the fact that we love The Simpsons, but we hate a poo, and we don't know what to do about this. Right. And it's working through that tension. Whereas Cal Penn emphatically says that. Because of Apu, I hate The Simpsons. I can't watch The Simpsons. Right. And when Kondabalu says, oh, but like, I like The Simpsons because Cal Penn chimes in and says, because you hate yourself. And <laughs> I know I don't want to say that this is a one-to-one -one mapping on rhetoric on here, but whenever I get into conversations about Merchant of Venice or Shylock with Jews in particular, I feel a bit like Cal Penn because... Right. I know there's a lot of tired arguments about self-hating Jews, and I don't want to trudge up all of that, but I yeah. personally can't help but wonder if there's some element of internalized anti-Semitism that pulls Jews towards Shylock, that makes us want to reclaim him, to reclaim the play, when I'm not saying we should just junk the play altogether, but I wonder what it is about this play that compels Jews like yourself, like myself to an extent, to think maybe we can change him or maybe we can tell a good story about anti-Semitism when or rewrite the play altogether, like Arnold Wesker did in The Merchant, or Mark Lear and Young in his monologue Shylock, which takes on more of a meta-theatrical yeah. role. But but I just wonder why go to all of this energy to jump through hoops to tell a contemporary version where we have to turn it into a tragedy, have to tell it from Shylock's perspective. Shylock's only in five scenes of the original play. He is not yeah. the main character. He's not the tragic hero. He is the villain. We all agree this, as you've just laid out in your two-pole version of playing yeah. this play. But I just wonder, why do we all think this play is so much worth the trouble of reclaiming, of saving? Could we be better off just junking it and moving on or doing something different with our time? Why do we get so fixated on this one play? I would say that it's about understanding our history. I mean, I think that it comes down to understanding systems of oppression that have kept Jewish people in certain, I mean, like to the degree that like, when people say Shylock and that, like we understand what that character is now, I understand that this might be, for our generation, it might not be as significant if you're not Jewish, but like, 
the idea of a Shylock or who which Shylock is, we think of a moneylender. Like we think of this, like this is where the, I, well, it's not where, but it is indicative of where the idea of a money-grubbing Jew comes from. But we don't understand why. The idea is that in the medieval times through the Elizabethan era and into the Renaissance, that is what Jews could do. They weren't allowed to hold other jobs. They were only allowed to hold certain kinds of employment because they just wouldn't be accepted in other contexts. So when we think of this idea of Shylock as the kind of money lender, the money grubbing Jew, that's what like it's because of systems of oppression that force him into that role. Same deal with the play opens with this scene that that, you know, the Pacino version displays. It's not typically displayed on stage, but Shylock talks about it where he's spit on. Right. In fact, I think it's Antonio that spits on him that, you know, it's this moment of. Hate it's written into the play. That I think the. I think to just say, okay, well, we'll get rid of it. Does history a disservice? Like, I think the conversation is actually a historical one. Like, I think that's part of the reason that these adaptations of Merchant annoy the shit out of me. <laughs> because it, like, a lot of times when we come at Shylock from any other context than a historical context, or come at Shylock without doing that historical work, and there's a lot of historical work to be done in something like Merchant of Venice, more so, I would say, than something, well, I don't want to get too controversial. I was, anyway. My point being, you know, when you come at these plays without doing the historical work, you do the play a disservice. Once you've done that historical work, you can begin to understand why it's an important story to tell because Shakespeare does not exist in a vacuum. Shakespeare, the part of the brilliance of Shakespeare is that Shakespeare has been relevant since the reign of Elizabeth I, and Shakespeare is still relevant, right? The fact is that we, like, to reclaim the character, we're not necessarily just talking about doing, you know, a perfect version of Merchant of Venice. We're talking about showing a character that is flawed. I mean, it's actually, it's interesting. It's similar to the discussion that Shalom Ash has uh, uh, regarding the God of Vengeance, where it's like, yes, this character is, Flawed, yeah, sorry, in Indecent, this character is flawed, this character is, has bad morals, and, you know, in Indecent, I can't remember which, which writer it is that says to Shalamash, like, well, you're showing our people as these horrible people, and he goes, well, some of us are, right? And I think that is essential to the conversation of representation, is an understanding that we do not need to be martyrs for our own people. We can be villains, but let us be the villains. You know what I mean? Like, understand why Shylock is the villain. Understand why, like, if, you know, when you look at great kind of contemporary villains, the first person, the first character that comes to mind is Don Corleone from The Godfather. No one would argue that Don Corleone is a good man, but we understand his motivations, right? We understand that, you know, they talk about it in the various documentaries and things about the making of the godfather 
where he's not, he's, you know, as an Italian American in a specific time in America who has been put down by the system. And so he makes his own system, right? Shylock is not quite the same, but we, once you understand a villain's motivations, it's much easier to sympathize and relate and almost understand them. I'm not saying that's necessarily the goal, but I think when we talk about reclaiming these roles, it's about going, I'm not going to let you make me the butt of your joke anymore. I'm, if I'm going to be the villain, I'm going to be a damn good convincing villain. You know what I mean? Like it's about blaming all parts of us, the good and the bad. Shylock does not have to be a, an honorable character, but Shylock does have to be Jewish, is what I would say. And not the actor necessarily, but you cannot separate Shylock's Judaism from the character. Okay. I mean, to separate Shylock's Judaism from the character is to negate one of the greatest speeches ever written, which I just think is a sin. <laughs> okay. Well, you've gotten us there pretty gracefully. Let's talk about a production that happened in Toronto that we reviewed here on the cup. We, myself and Jill, without you, but yes. it was <laughs> by a production company, a new company. I think it's their first and today only production called Real Canaan Theatre. And they did The Merchant of Venice at Red Sandcastle Theatre in, I think, September of 2022. And they did essentially what you're saying you don't like, that they... and. Yeah. I, I will say, just, you know, going on the record, my thoughts are all on the record. We reviewed that that show. I, I was quite positive about what they did there, and partly for reasons that I think we've already alluded to, but we'll get into, but where they chose to... Yes, on one hand, we could just simply look at it as they scrubbed Judaism from it altogether, that the actor, Kitty Lackey, who was playing Shylock, a female Shylock, mind you, you know, all of the lines were changed to because I am an immigrant and it was ne not about Judaism sp specifically, but it was otherness in general. And she, I don't I'm know if she herself- so angry, man. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's have a nuanced conversation about this because what, yeah, yeah, yeah. what I liked about this production, as I said back then, is that instead of just saying, these are what the characters are, and if we want to do this authentically, let's get an actor who suits all of them or meets the identity of all of them, across the board of this production they did we will bend the text to the cast we have and in what i think it did effectively it took the thing that a lot of people are already saying about characters like shylock like othello for example that yes it is rooted in a very skewed view of cultural particularity very stereotyped view of cultural particularity, but at the end of the day, this is just a parable about otherness that might be informed by cultural particularity, but if the reason why we feel the need to tell these stories is because we think that it's important to address the way we treat cultural others, does Shylock have to be Jewish? And immigration is something that I think we see a lot of people who are immigrants getting, you know, possibly one could even say more more so than even Jews, that there's a lot of anti-immigrant hate in the culture today, more okay, so. Okay, this is sorry. I'm just going to stop you there because that's not true. Like, I'm sorry, but that is not true. And it is not a fair substitution. Now, I will say I did not see this production. I think it is well within the director's right to conceptualize the play however they want. 
I do not think that is an excuse for not doing your homework, but you know, when now I don't want to speak to every immigrant's experience, but I will say that my parents are immigrants. My parents are immigrants from the United States and they have not had a different, well, they had difficulties immigrating as anyone does, but they have not had the same difficulties as let's say someone from Syria would have, right? Like when we talk, like it, to just say immigrant takes away the entire controversy and point that when we talk about immigrants, we are talking about people that do not, that are not white. Like that is the implication that like an immigrant from the United States is not going to face the same difficulties as an immigrant from the Middle East or an immigrant from Africa, right? Like that is a really, really important distinction to make. An immigrant from the United States is not going to face the same difficulties as an immigrant with an accent. We're talking about difference, right? And I do not like that immigrant has been used as a catch-all term for difference, because that is just not true. It's skirting around an issue that is much more nuanced, and it's copping out. Like, it's a cop-out. It's a cop-out concept. You want to do a play about immigration? Do fucking View from the Bridge. Like, it's just not the same conversation. it just it makes me annoyed because everyone wants to be progressive but no one actually wants to talk about the things that are directly in front of your face everyone wants to kind of use euphemisms to to disguise what they really want to say as 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 david suchette said shylock's otherness does not it is not isolated shylock's otherness comes from the fact that he is jewish in venice in the elizabethan age that would have been a significant difference. Being an immigrant is this kind of like, it's such a broad term that it means nothing. Like it doesn't mean, it just like, and that's not to devalue or, you know, there's plenty of people who have immigrated who are white from wherever and have had difficult times. But it's not like, once again, you can't just be like, oh, we hate all immigrants. That's what we're talking about. It's like, it just doesn't, it's not a one-to-one. Uh, sorry, I, I, I... No, it's why I, okay, so pick yeah. up on what you're putting down here. You're right, it is not a one-to-one because you can be an immigrant from anywhere. It is a term that just describes movement as opposed to any kind of cultural specificity. And to be clear, I, as far as I know, the actor who played Shylock was white. Well, white from Hungary and with a thick accent. I don't know if she herself is directly right. from Hungary, but she was tapping into her own cultural identity or relationship to otherness and crafting a Shylock that was more reflexive of that than putting on an idea of this is what a Jewish Shylock should look like, or I can't play this role because I'm not right. Jewish. And right. so otherness was imbued into it. It wasn't just using immigrant as a catch-all everyone who's not from here is different. It was, I am treated differently because of where I'm from in relation to Venice or in relation to Canada in terms of both the character and experiences. And as a result, I don't know. And maybe it comes down to my own misgivings about this play, but I felt like that was a more thought provoking and a more engaging version of this than just another version which 
that says, look how sad Shylock the Jew has it because we're doing this after the Holocaust and we all understand that Jews have had it bad. And that's... But I actually don't think... I, I don't think that's fair. I don't think we all understand that. But, I actually think a lot of people don't understand that. Like, I think that's a big part of the issue. And I actually think that's a big part of the, like, reason that the play was changed. Like, if, if you understood that, you would do the fucking play. You know what I mean? Like, I just... Part of the other thing that just, it, it makes me frustrated is like, as a Jewish creator, let us have it. Like, just like the, the one, like, let us have the, 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 this, this, like, oh God, like I, it just. If it, I can yeah. chime in on that, because I think this is where the crux of the difference of our opinions is you say, as a Jewish creator, let us have it. And I say, as a Jewish creator, I don't want it. I don't like Shylock. This play makes me angry. And I don't... But, but, but like, I understand that, but no one's asking me to pre perform or present yeah. it. And I wouldn't like, want to, personally. And that's fine, right? Like, there's no one is arguing with that opinion. It's just like, do, like, why are you doing Merchant of Venice then? Right? You're not producing the play, which is totally valid. If, you, if it doesn't resonate with you and your understanding of your own Judaism, that makes total sense. But then I would say to this production, well, why are you producing this play? Like, this is your first production as a company, and you've chosen Merchant of Venice, which is a difficult play for many reasons, Jewish question aside. Like, why are you doing Merchant of Venice? Why don't you pick another play that better suits your needs? Why, why do you have to take something away to make this point that you want to make, as opposed to doing any number of plays i mean hell do the tempest like you know it just th there is something really questionable to me about going well i want to do merchant of venice but i want to take away the central conceit of the play which is about this difference of religion i mean judaism aside merchant of venice is a very christian play Right? Like, like the amount that they talk about religion in the play, it just, like, it's not a one-to-one -to, -one to sub out, like, religion for immigration. Like, it's actually, a, in my view, it's a cop-out. Because, like, if you do your research and you understand the climate that Merchant of Venice takes place in, within this Venetian political system as well, like it is integral to the story, this pull between these two forces of Christianity and Judaism. I, like there's so many plays <laughs> and so many good plays. Why do you choose Merchant of Venice to do as the first production of your company and then remove this crucial element? And once again, like I'm, I'm, frustrated by it i didn't see the play and so you know this is not to say that people shouldn't have enjoyed it this is not to say that they were necessarily wrong in presenting it but these are the questions that i have then in that context for just like what like why why don't and, why don't you do a different play but and i guess this is part of what i liked about this production is because i don't think the questions that they're trying to raise is what do we do with others in our culture? How do we treat immigrants? They're not saying we want to do a play about immigration. So instead of 
Arthur Miller will do Shakespeare. They right. pointedly want to raise the very questions that we are having and talking about right now. And whether you think it's their right or prerogative to do that, as I believe non-Jews leading this company is a different story. But I think it's more about... Well, I mean, like, I'm sorry, but to name your company Real Canaan Theater and then to do Merchant of Venice as the first production, like, it just, the red flags go off. Like, it's just, and then to remove Jews from the production, the red flags go off. And, I mean, maybe they're trying to raise good questions, but, I mean... Yeah, like, I don't think you ever can... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's fine. Like, and I don't... I think it's maybe a misnomer to say that Jews have been removed from this production because of Merchant of Venice. Everybody's walking to the theater knowing this play or knowing at least the rough skeleton of the play, even if they've never read or seen it themselves. And you have this, you know, double image playing in your head simultaneously of the actor and the character who is statedly not Jewish and the Shylock I know in my head who is. And it is this lamination of the two is what I think is enacted and the tension between those two is what I saw watching this performance. I didn't go in and think, ah, yes, there are no Jews here. <laughs> I was like, of course, this is a play about Judaism. Right. And I liked the way that it sides, not sidestepped is the wrong word, but it invoked that through absence more so than presence. And it raises, I think, a good question of if Shakespeare didn't know any Jews, as we believe he probably didn't, and if he is building this character off of a stereotype and still does a good job of making us care about the humanity of this character. Why must it be Jewish or so Jewish? Couldn't it, if Shakespeare himself was treating it, well, but if Shakespeare himself was treating it as a cipher, I come from the position that I don't think Jews can own this play because it's not a Jewish play from the ground up. We have turned it into a Jewish play by virtue of imbuing Shylock with sympathy, making but him this is my hero. point is that you can't separate, you can't separate the history. Like that's, I think the thing that's missing is that we, you can't like the Shakespeare's play does not stand alone. It, it stands with all like 500 years of historical context. Like that's the important thing. And that's what's missing is that Shylock has gone from being a stereotype and like, you're like the name Shylock is synonymous with Jewish people, not in a good way, but like that's a slur. Like you're taking, I mean, like it, it is like taking, a, not to like obviously, like it's like having doing a production of Uncle Tom's Cabin, but changing it to be about a diff, like not to be about slavery. Like that term is about a, a very specific cultural and societal moment that has been used as an oppressive term for centuries. Like Shylock, the word Shylock has been used as an oppressive term for Jews. So to kind of let us have our own oppression, like it's, it's that kind of thing of like, let us have our history. Like I, that's what makes me really annoyed about this is that it's like to change the Merchant of Venice, without understanding why the play has become important for Jews, is the flaw, in my opinion. That you go from, okay, yes, Shakespeare didn't know any Jews. Great. Now there's many years where that character is used to directly ridicule Jewish people. 
And then there's many more years where that play is used to not only directly ridicule Jewish people, but to justify violence against Jewish people. And then there's like 50 years where Jews go, we're going to do it ourselves and we're going to do it right. And we're going to give this character the story and the attention that he deserves. And then in, without you know, taking into account any of those 500 years of context, you go, it's a play about immigrants. It just doesn't seem fair. Like, the, can you tell me the last time you saw a play with a distinctly Jewish theme that wasn't indecent in Toronto? I can think of, yes, well, it's I can, but it sort of feels like a cop-out because it was at, produced by the Harold Green Jewish Theater. Which, okay, that was not produced by the Harold Green Jewish Theater. I know there is, I didn't see it myself, but if you remember Ashley Murphy, who was also a panelist on that, compared it to a Hannah Moscovich play, Old Stock, which she thought that yes. had come out a few years earlier had very similar content and themes. I did not see that play myself, but I would say that's another example. How many years ago was that produced? Two? Give or take. Couldn't tell you myself because I was not there. <laughs> I agree. Two there years is a ago. Right? I agree that there is a paucity of Jewish stories in the stage, if that's the, the argument here. That's my point, is I'm just saying, like, well, why take this story that historically, in, like, not just from Shakespeare's time, but now has become this important story within Jewish culture. Why take that play and make it about some other theme when you could just take another, just do another play that actually fits that theme? that's my question is like, if you're going to do Merchant of Venice, you have to consider the Jewish context. Like you just have to, and then make a decision, but it has to come from that place. Like, I, it, I just like, it's this thing that comes up again and again, especially in Canadian theater, where it's, it just kind of feels like, can't you like, just let us have, one like just let us have this one like you know what i mean or maybe that's selfish but i do feel like it's just and once again i'm not actually saying that the part of shylock needs to be played by a jewish character or by a jewish actor that i actually don't believe like i think that part especially because it is shakespeare and it's not old stock for example which is a much more culturally specific play the, the, there's no inherent reason why that part needs to be played by a Jewish character. The text is there. Like, the text will do the work for you. It's just, like, you have to just consider the reason that Shylock exists. You have to consider the historical context. And that's where I get... That's where I have difficulty. Like, I actually would have had less difficulty with that concept if they had a non-Jewish actor playing Shylock as a Jew. Like, I think that's a production that would have gone, okay, well, let's see the production and let's see how they handled the character. Like, that's a much more interesting conflict than just going like, we don't have any Jewish actors, so the Jewish, what? the, the any mention of Jews is out of the play. I think, it, you know, like, to me, I think it comes down to, it comes down to that playing Shakespeare clip with Patrick Stewart and David Suchet, because you look at that and you say, I 100% agree with David Suchet, Shylock is an other who, because he's Jewish. Whereas yes. I see this production as a good faith engagement with Patrick Stewart's alternative proposal that this is an other who happens to be Jewish. You don't have to agree with that, but I don't think. I, I don't, no, I want to say, like, I don't disagree. I don't think Patrick Stewart is wrong. 
I, I agree more with David Suchet, but I don't think Patrick Stewart is inherently wrong. I think it's an interpretation of the play. Fine. Like, that's not a bad thing by any means. It's just that Patrick Stewart is still engaging with the character as a Jewish character. Like, th- th- they didn't change the play, right? Like, my whole thing is just that Shakespeare doesn't need our help. Like, write your own play or do another play. Shakespeare doesn't need our intervention in such a dramatic and specific way. It's, or unspecific way. Like it, What I would say to that is, and, you know, we've been contradicting ourselves throughout this conversation, but I would say that yeah. <laughs> the fact that we have turned the play into the tragedy of Shylock is an argument against Shakespeare can speak for himself or stands on his own because we're already taking a preferred interpretation or version of this that maybe has seeds in the original, but really requires a lot of legwork to produce. See, I don't think that's true. I think that we're taking the text at face value. It's actually the opposite. It's understanding understanding the historical context of the play and then saying, okay, well, what does the text give us? The text gives us a story about a man who is spit on and beat up and is very angry, right? And it's just a question of performance. It's not a question of changing the text. It's just a question of how you perform that character. Instead of the long hook nose and the fucking, you know, this guy, it becomes just a person. And that is where we get in. I mean, like, there's so many examples that I'm now trying to blank on of, like, when this is done. Like, when you have an actor in the role who understands the humanism of the role, all of that other stuff, like, there's so many. We have this obsession with villains. I mean, like, we, if you think about, like, these villains that we go, that have become these pop culture icons, the Joker or, you know, Killian Murphy's character from Peaky Blinders. You know, my actually, you know, thing about mob movies, I thought of, you know, Denzel Washington's character in American Gangster which is another great example of someone who is serving his people, right? Serving his community, who's also terrible, but is like, we understand the motivations. Shylock's motivations are clear. We understand why he's behaving so poorly. He's hurt and he's been trodden. Like there are these things that, yes, obviously if I were to direct the play, Shylock would be Jewish, but like, I just think that there are other plays that better display the idea of otherness versus the idea of Judaism as otherness. You know what I mean? That like you can have both, but let the play be the play. Like I, I just, I mean, also just as a like technical note, like <laughs> immigrant does not scan. Like the in the same way that Shylock does, right? There's implications beyond just the plot of changing those words, and so there's just lots of places where I just go like, why? Like I I don't, I just don't, I just don't understand it, and that might be my own flaw. But and once again, this is not to say that the people who enjoy the play are wrong, but I will say. This was, and this is the danger of this kind of adaptation, is there was a critic who, I will not name, but very well-meaningly said that removing the Judaism, the mentions of Judaism from the play humanized it. 
And I said, wait a second. (laughs) Can we just go back and, right. Can we just go back and figure out then what the dehumanizing element was? You know what I mean? Like that that you and I misspeaking i don't i would like to think that oh absolutely critic does not believe that jews dehumanize I, anything they touch no no no. and once again like to be clear this is not speaking against the critic this is not speaking against the production in that they're i don't think they're bad people i don't think they meant to hurt anyone like that's not what i'm saying my point is that these kind of discussions and these kind of choices inspire rhetoric that then inspires rhetoric you know what i mean like that, that there are larger implications to re- the removal of Jews from our own history. That Shylock is, whether you like it or not, an inescapable part of our history. And allowing Jews to be in control of that narrative allows for reshaping of the language around Jews and representation within these contexts and just Jews in general. Because then when you have someone saying, oh, well, it's very humanizing. I mean, this happens all the time where it's like, you know, Shylock has been cast as many different races and kind of different kinds of people. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But the rhetoric that it inspires is dangerous. And and oftentimes, well, sorry, I will say oftentimes is dangerous and not necessarily from the creators. But then that you get to these discussions of, well the well we can't really like there was another i can't remember which theater company it was in the states that cast shylock as a black man nothing wrong with that it's you know like it's a, that's the director's choice but then the director's statement said that oh well this is more reflective of the world that we live in it's things like that you know what i mean where I go, I don't think that director is a bad person. I don't think that director meant to harm anyone. I didn't. I don't think that director meant to be inflammatory. But then as a Jewish person, I go, oh, I guess I don't fit into that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, to me, I see that as it's attempting something very similar to what Real Canaan did. That taking, using Shylock as symbol of otherness and putting a different marginalized other in it, whether it's a more direct one than the kind of vaguely constructed idea of an immigrant to more concrete you are a black person in america if that's where the production was being set and to me yeah i get that maybe there's harmful things about the rhetoric of more reflexive but i don't want to get hung up on the rhetoric personally because i think that prevents us from looking at the fact that maybe merchant of venice has something meaningful to say about the black experience in america and if we get hung up on the fact that, you know, the director misspoke in conceptualizing that, we can ignore the fact that otherness is otherness, oppression is oppression, marginalization is marginalization. And I don't think we do good by being possessive of it. I don't know. That's where I come from. I I agree with you in theory, but I think, like, this... This is certainly true in Canada that artists of many different quote unquote marginalized groups have become very possessive of their own stories. But then as soon as Jewish people try to be possessive of one of our own stories, it becomes like, oh, well, we wanted to do this or it was more relevant for that. Like, this is a story about a Jew, inescapably. Like, and so that's where, 
I mean, it's it gets to Dave Bariel's, you know, thesis of in his book, Jews Don't Count, which is a fantastic book that I would recommend everyone take a look at. And also a great documentary that he did with a number of notable Jewish actors and creators. But it's this idea of like, why isn't Judaism other enough for this conversation? We were other enough for a long time when we were being oppressed, but now it's not enough. So why? Like what, this is the question, right? Like why is it more humanizing to have it be an immigrant rather than a Jew? Like I, that's, I think the core of this is like, why don't we get to be a part of that conversation? I'm not saying that we necessarily, because, you know, I was just having this conversation with another theater company where they were talking about planning a season and they were saying, well, we want to have, we want to represent traditionally marginalized groups. And the discussion came up about, well, you don't mean Jews. And it's true, right? Like that when we discuss that, what we're discussing is visible minorities, right? Not that's bad. But the danger is then in tokenization that we're going, look, look at the minorities that we're representing, as opposed to actually taking a look at the core issue and saying, well, how can we better understand the context and historical significance of this marginalization so that we don't fall into the same traps? We've overcompensated and overcorrected to the point where there are groups that like, you know, the same thing where like I would identify typically as a queer artist. This is not really something I talk about yet. Here I am on a podcast episode mentioning it. Um, We're getting vulnerable here. No, but like, this is my thing is that it's just not something that I talk about because it's not really anyone's business. And yet here I am like I, as a kind of guy who typically dates female presenting people, people assume that I'm straight. And, you know, there are, like, there are, here I am writing grant applications where I don't like prostituting my own sexuality, basically, for a couple bucks. Like, it's that kind of thing where we kind of fixate and focus on the specifics of a, a cultural identity as opposed to actually understanding the context behind it. And that's where I raise the question, well, what's wrong with it being a Jewish character like why shouldn't it be a jewish character why don't you pick another play you know what i mean like why don't you do another play that more specifically speaks to the issues that you're addressing why do you have to take something away from the jewish experience to make a point about another oppressed group we've become the kind of invisible martyr of this movement where like our story is being told, but it's not being told with us in it. So I, that's where I draw, that's where I take issue, you know, like I, I just find it, I find it hypocritical. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. I know we disagree about a lot of the finer points of this, but yeah. at the end of the day, like I see where you're coming from and I don't want to negate any of that. And I don't know how you feel about we we've dealt with sorry we've dealt with merchant a lot. Do you want to move on to fiddler or maybe something a little lighter? <laughs> sure, yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> fiddler on the roof is a play that I can talk about comfortably without getting incredibly frustrated. But like, and I think 
it's interesting that Fiddler does that because yes, it is it's a musical comedy. It has dark moments. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone in the cast of characters is Jewish. It was yes. made unlike Merchant, it was written by an almost exclusively Jewish creative team originally. And yes. And based with one of the things that people usually don't know, based on a very famous Yiddish yeah. short story by Shalom Black. Yes, and that's huge. So it's an interesting counterexample because it has a lot of the yeah. cultural specificity without a lot of the baggage. So yes, I guess we could just sort of unpack. Do you feel the same way about wanting Fiddler to be told predominantly or exclusively by Jews, Jewish actors, Jewish artists? that you do when it comes to something like Merchant? I do not feel the same way. I think my, like, what I usually say is just like, I want some Jews on the creative team. Like, I I would just say like a Jewish director is really useful in that, or, you know, even a Jewish producer, like just someone who who can be dramaturg, like who can be a bit of a cultural touchstone. I would say like, Fiddler on the Roof is an incredibly well-written show. And as similarly to Merchant of Venice, you know, the text really will carry you. Like, I think that it's almost the exact opposite of Merchant in what it is trying to express, kind of. Um, in that Fiddler is much more a show about humans that bad things happen to, as opposed to like this show that is about kind of the the battle between religions. Almost. It's about a human that does bad things, whereas Fiddler is a, yeah. a human who bad humans who bad things happen to. Yeah, it's a good way right. Of exactly. That difference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's very well articulated. Yeah. So I mean, it's sometimes hard, also just because Topple ha- like has created this such a distinct image of the character of Tevia that now every actor that follows kind of wants to do Topple, not necessarily do Tevia, but do Topple's Tevia. And that's also just going to happen. Like every actor that plays Hamlet is going to have a little bit of Burton, is going to have a little bit of Olivier, is going to have a little bit of whoever, you know, like carry the performances that you've seen with you as an actor. And I think that's important, but, you know, it's really interesting because, like, the, if you listen to the Zero Mostel recording of Tevia, it's very, very different than Topol. And it's a different, he's, he, he does, I mean, Zero Mostel had a, a more kind of thick kind of Yiddish accent. Topol is Israeli, obviously, so it's, it, you know, you just have different vocalizations. But, you know... I think that Fiddler is something that actually lends itself a little bit more. It's part of the reason that, like, you know, when you talk about Jewish work and understanding Jewish stories, or even, like, you know, (laughs) the amount, I don't want to say, like, this, like, it's, like, a hundred, but, like, I've definitely been on a handful of dates where I've, like, mentioned that I'm Jewish, and the person that I'm with will be, like, Oh, well, I, I have to tell you, like, I don't know that much about Judaism, but I've seen Fiddler on the Roof. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> like, that's it's not bad. Um, it's a start. No, exactly. Where, where, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it is an interesting touchstone of Jewish culture and that kind of, uh, specifically of Ashkenazi culture. But I, I, yeah, I don't think that you need to, 
I think that the show is well written enough that shines through. And I think that the songs, like the, what Fiddler has that Merchant doesn't is music. And, you know, songs like Tradition or Wonder of Wonders or Sunrise Sunset, there's no, like, you can't do an accent when you sing. And if you do, you're not doing a very good job. Like, it, it should, you know, those songs are packed with such important cultural relevance that no matter who's playing it like you can't escape that kind of you know that those that cultural relevance you know what i mean yeah well lots of good things you're bringing up here what's interesting and we've done those two reviews that i've mentioned before on documentaries about the cultural legacy of fiddler and the first one in particular yeah. miracle of miracles it was called has the whole backbone of that documentary is talking about the universality of Fiddler on the Roof, how they perform it in Japan, yeah. they perform it in inner city high schools, they perform it in the Netherlands. And it's, I think it's interesting that we're talking about Jewish particularity when the appeal of this show globally has been about the fact that it, despite having the outward signifiers of explicitly Jewish content and even like internal content, I would say, it it feels so universal and transferable that we almost don't feel like we can contain it to just Jewish actors, Jewish creative team. When they, as they yeah. famously said in that documentary, and you hear this anecdote all the time, when they performed it in Japan with a cast of Japanese actors, the audience has asked it, do Americans get the story? It's so Japanese about tradition and family. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And the, that kind of become, I think for me, maybe that's where I, part of where I'm coming from in, appreciating what the real Canaan approach to Shylock did is I think it's trying to say there is something beating hard about these stories that if we don't let ourselves be blinded by the overbearing weight of Judaism, there's something here for everyone that we can all appreciate, but we have to be willing to let it be universal in a way. And maybe that's but I think the, the, the difference. Yeah, go ahead. The difference is what I think is that that Japanese production didn't change anything. It was just done by Japanese actors, right? That that what I'm challenging is that is the idea that the Jewish experience is not also universal, right? That's the issue: is that you have to change the Judaism to make people understand the play, which is not the case. That's where I take issue: is that like. It's like saying, oh, well, we would understand Othello better if it was X racial group. We, like, I watch Othello and I get Othello. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't necessarily get it in the same way that my black friends would get it. But there's a universality to that, undeniable universality to that story, right? I agree with you. I think Fiddler on the Roof is a really interesting example because it is so tied to its Judaism. but. I think actually Fiddler on the Roof has grown in popularity partially because it's a play about diaspora, right? Like that, I think that's where it's not a play about religion, which Merchant is. That, that like, the idea of diaspora, which is originally a term used to describe Jews that live away from Israel, 
Challenge, which is the last time I'll mention Israel. Um, but, you know, this idea of diaspora is something that has become really, really relevant because of this, the idea of kind of globalization and immigration and all of those things. That the idea of refugee, like being a refugee, having to move because of persecution of some kind, those are really universal concepts. Similarly, in Merchant of Venice, the play, you know, the, thematically, yes, it's about this kind of two-sided debate between Christianity and Judaism, but the play is about revenge. That's what the play is about, right? And that's what Shylock says. If we are like you in this, then we shall resemble you in the rest. You know, if a Christian wrong a Jew, what should his example be by Christian example? Why revenge, right? That it's, it's actually about those universal elements that like, just because you and I are different, we're still going to fuck each other up, basically. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think every good story that has lasted the test of time has those universal elements. I think that, generally speaking, it's not fair to pinpoint and say only this person can play this role. Unless it's something like A Raisin in the Sun, you know, or, you know, whatever play you want to pick where, like, the setting and the characters are specifically laid out for you by the writer. Which, to be fair, Merchant of Venice kind of does. So it's um, similar in that way, I would say. And we're accepting that a Japanese cast can do something yes. very impactful with it. Is my point. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, no, and I, I that's... Uh, super fair. I would say Fiddler is different in that, like, actually, there. I think there are a lot of similarities between Fiddler on the Roof and Raisin in the Sun, which would be a very interesting essay. But, you know, I think it's in the same way that, like, you're not, you don't necessarily have to cast Asagai as a Nigerian actor, right? That That another actor who is Black, but not necessarily Nigerian, would still have a similar understanding of those things that Asagai talks about in Fiddler, while I, I, as a director, would cast Jews in the play, I can understand another director going, well, okay, this person has an understanding of this idea of refugee and of being a refugee and diaspora and those kinds of things, where I think that it, it doesn't, like, the Judaism is written into the show, and the show actually, part of the reason that it's such a good gateway is that it teaches you like the show actually, like Tevya actually explains to us the traditions in the show where Merchant of Venice doesn't, right? Or whatever, you know, other show like Indecent doesn't, right? It doesn't teach you about those things. Fiddler on the Roof actually actively teaches both actor and audience what they're talking about, which didn't is part of the, the brilliance of it. Yeah, Sorry, didactic theater, as you alluded to. Earlier. Well, it is, and it's actually a really good example of didactic theater. It does it really, really well, partially because it does it through song, and everyone's like, you know, how are you going to say no to those awesome songs? But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm interested to know what you think about that because I, I do think that there's it's such a it's such a fine line between you know representation universality. Mm -hmm. Well. And where I come from in that, and I think this is what motivates a lot of my opinions, some of which are maybe better founded than others, but when it comes to those, I personally lean towards universality, and partly because I feel like I recognize that I have the privilege of doing that. 
that as a yeah. Jew who both passes as white and is white, I do I'm coming at this with white privilege and therefore I'm willing to make these rulings about it's cool to you know remove Jewish elements from merchant it's cool to do fiddler in Japan it's cool to and I feel like yeah, as a Jew I have the right to say that in a way that I yeah. wouldn't say with a play about blackness or asianness or something else and to me I guess it comes from a philosophical preference for universalism to not essentially ghettoize ourselves into our stories to recognize that we we do better as societies when we in, engage with pluralism and sharing our cultures with each other not to then give carte blanche to caricature or say anyone can do anything but recognizing that there is some good in i'll tell you my story and you tell me yours I will tell someone else your story and then maybe they'll learn something too because they didn't have the benefit of hearing it directly from the source and there's gradients to all of this and fine lines that can easily be crossed and it's why this is such a complicated topic but I, yeah of course yeah i just as my own philosophical preference and artistic preference do want to bend towards universality i think that should be the goal even if the current cultural conditions don't allow it to be an easy one to achieve. But I think that it is a really good point. And I like what you said about kind of telling other people's stories and the importance of that. I, I think that is, you know, it's an, it is an important and, and often overlooked, you know, step in understanding and reconciliation and these kinds of things. I think more than anything, what my point is, I just like, I want Jews to have a seat at the table when we talk about these things. Like, I think it's uh, like when we talk about that, that production of Merchant of Venice that Real Canaan did, I, like one of the things that bugs me about it is that no Jews were consulted, you know, like that there were no Jews on the team. So we didn't like, no one was there to say, okay, well, if you want to do it, that's fine, but maybe think about it from this context. Like, I'm not against the idea of, certainly not of non-Jewish actors playing Jewish characters and things like that, but also like, I'm not against the idea of change, like inherently of changing texts to suit your needs. Like, I think that, you know, that is an important part of the creation process, whether it's through adaptation or, interpretation or whatever it is but it's just like when we have these conversations about representation i really do think that it's important that jews are able to have a voice within those conversations to say like well maybe that's not the best way to approach it maybe you should approach it another way because i mean whether we like it or not we're talking about the judaism in merchant of venice about this within the context of this production right like in that way, it is inseparable. You can do whatever you want textually. Someone is going to go, where are the Jews? <laughs> you know what, what I mean? I, what I was saying um, earlier, why I think it works is because you can't actually separate it from the Jews. You can do the text work that keeps it in the background more so, but it's never gone completely. Well, right. But that's my point is that like, that's still a reason to consult with a Jewish dramaturg, for example, on that show. You know what I mean? To Just to have the perspective of why it's important. Why, 
what the implications of taking that out are. How certain people might, you know, I'm working on a show right now for Fringe that deals with, you know, it's a it's a show about a bat mitzvah. It's a very wonderful show. Everyone come see the bat mitzvah at Fringe. It's a little, little plug. Yeah, but, we'll give you more you know, space to plug at the end. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but my point is that a lot of our discussions, you know, there's a Jewish assistant director on the show. I'm producing the show, uh, you know, a, lot, a number of Jewish actors, and not an entire cast of Jewish actors, but, you know, a number of Jewish actors who are able to inform how the show sounds and the different specific kind of culturally specific things about the event and, you know, regarding the tour portion and, you know, what age a, a bar bat mitzvah happens at and just things like that, that it just fleshes the show out. I'm not saying that every single Jewish character needs to be played by a Jewish actor, but I do think that consultation is really important. And also, actually, to, to your point, that Jewish stories not be exclusive to Jews, but that Jews are still let into the process. Like, I think that's really what, like, it's important that, whether, like I said, whether it's a Jewish director or a Jewish assistant director or a couple Jewish actors, like, you know, I remember seeing the Dybbuk at Soul Pepper years ago, like, probably almost, yeah, I want to say, like, I remember that production. Almost 10 years ago, which is like, you do, you remember it? And it was awesome. Like, it's it's still traditional experience you're going. Yeah. Me too. Like, I I still have such distinct memories of that production. The fact is that there were, like, I'd want to say, like, maybe two Jews or three Jews in a cast of like 20. But the playwright, Anton, was really, was in did a really good job of explaining through, and to be clear, I'm actually not talking about didactic theater, but he did a good job of illustrating tradition. And it was clear that they had done their work. You know what I mean? Like that they had acquainted themselves very well with this idea of shtetl and the Jewish traditions. And like the groundwork was there. They didn't say, well, we're going to do this play, but we're going to remove, like it's still like the love story is still fundamental. The ghost story is still fundamental, but they actually just did the work and they didn't have to remove Judaism from it. You know, like same in the Japanese production of Fiddler on the Roof. Now I haven't seen that, but I assume that they're still Jewish in the play. I would assume You know, so, but it's universal. Yeah. So before we get too far from Fiddler, there's two, I guess, other Goyim in the room, I guess, when we want to say. Well, yeah. One, yeah, of, the, one of them is Norman sure. Jewison, who directed the film. And yeah. contrary to what his name is. From Toronto. Is, he still lives in Toronto, yeah. I think. If you've ever seen a show at Hart House Theater, it's dedicated to Norman Jewison stage. It's Yeah, he's... And contrary to what his name would suggest, Jewison is not a Jew. Yeah, yeah. And the second Fiddler documentary that Mac and I reviewed, the Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen, that was basically the thesis of the whole show. He Jewison was essentially the protagonist of that documentary. And it was all about, you might be surprised mm. to learn that the guy with Jew in his name who directed the most Jewish movie you've ever seen is not Jewish. And it was kind of, yeah. and it was sort of making the case, not that, and see what a good job did, any goy could direct Fiddler. It was making the case that if any goy could direct Fiddler, it was this goy. Yeah, and, and sure. there, there was a lot of a very, maybe a belabored case a little bit, but a very good case made for Jewison 
despite not being Jewish himself, he grew up experiencing anti-Semitism by virtue of the fact that people assumed he was Jew based on his name. And you could right. question, is that right. actually anti-Semitism? Like it is anti-Semitism, I think, because it is anti-Jewish presence yeah. yeah. being foisted on someone who is themselves not Jewish, but it's hatred of Jews is what's motivating this prejudice. And so he struggled with that. And as a result, yeah. he became very interested in Jewish culture and studied it extensively. He had his wedding under a chuppah, even though neither he nor his wife were Jewish, I believe. <laughs> and that's and, an ally right there. Well, we love that guy. <laughs> and, and allyship was a huge part of this. Like he did so much work with Sidney Poitier. He directed right. In the Heat of the Night. He worked with Harry Belafonte. He, right. Like, right his social justice cred was just laid out on the table that yes if anybody could direct this very jewish movie and keep it authentic despite not being jewish it was him and i yeah. guess to me like i don't really have a question to build around this i guess this sounds like what you're saying about research and just this humanization right. that's i guess we have no disagreement there that is just the case of you didn't a good instance of somebody who doesn't have to be themselves jewish but definitely approaches it with the appreciation and respect and knowledge that makes absolutely. it work yeah now the absolutely i think it's a perfect example of that i mean like first of all like just to credit not even like outside of Hitler, not that max ackerman's credit to norman jewison means anything but like that's a guy who knew how to do dramaturgy like that was a guy who really knew how to do his research mm -hmm. and he did and it shows right like his movies are incredibly detailed and layered and I will also say, I mean, it speaks to a certain era. I mean, what a lot of people forget is that Jewish leaders were really closely tied to the civil rights movement as well. And this idea that our suffering, our oppression are not exclusive, that they are like suffering and oppression of all kinds as Jews were commanded to kind of familiarize ourselves with, I don't want to say like instruments of suffering, but to understand that it is our job to pursue justice and equality as much as we can. And so, you know, I think that is something that Norman Jewison, although he was not Jewish, actually understood. And it builds into his work. I mean, yeah, I think that I mean, it's a great movie. It's also, I think it also speaks to the importance of and the relationship between a great actor and a great director. Because when you have someone like Topol, like that's a guy that you can 100% rely on, right? To deliver a performance that like, and I mean, let's be real, like Topol had many wonderful performances. He's Tapia, like, like, there's no separating, like, he is Tepe. Like, that's his role, right? No one is disputing that. And so I think while, yes, Norman Jewison did a wonderful job on the movie, and the movie is incredibly detailed and textured because he did his historical research, I think that it's important to highlight the partnership that takes place between a director and his actors. And not just Topol, like, I mean, that, that whole cast is really brilliant. But, and I actually don't know if that whole cast was Jewish or not. So, they do a pretty good job. Actually, I know this from those um, documentaries. The only person in the main cast of the Jewish characters who is not played by a yeah. Jew <laughs> is Huddle, the second daughter. 
and she was kind of really into method acting and got into research right you know played it up but of the main cast you know obviously we don't have to count people like the constable and fiedka who are the non-jewish characters but of the main cast only huddle is not jewish herself yeah did i you know what that's not and you say that and i'm like that's who i would guess that's interesting (laughs) she did a good job (laughs) yeah i want to you said something very interesting that actually leads into one thing i was going to bring up too is you said topol is tevia nobody would dispute that fun fact in that second documentary fiddler's journey to the big screen which i encourage you to watch since you clearly have I would love it. Sounds great. Yeah, there's these two very good. Miracle of Miracles was the first one about just the stage show and its cultural legacy, and Journey to the Big Screen was about the making of the movie itself and Jewison's role in it in particular. But in that second movie, there's an interview with a pretty famous Jewish film critic named Kenneth Turin, maybe you're familiar with him, who said, like in a testimonial to the camera, that he doesn't like Tevye's performance in the movie. And his reasoning is, and you can... I'd be very curious to hear your opinion. Matt McKenzie and I kind of both said our piece about this, but he said that Topol is distinctly an Israeli Jew. And as a result, mm. nobody could mistake the Israeli Jewish character with the Eastern European, more demure a- approach to culture, to faith, to religion. And he thought these things are polar opposites and he therefore has never bought Topol in the role. Now, granted, he said that he loves Zero Mostel, who Zero Mostel also isn't like a really from the old country. He's a New York Jew, right. Broadway and vaudeville. Like, so it's right, interesting, right. like what frames of reference we're bringing to. But yeah, you know, when Mackenzie kind of saw this, he wanted us to have a question in that episode about like Ryan. I've never heard of anything like this. Anybody disputing Topol as the most perfect person for this role that he yeah. doesn't represent <laughs> Eastern European Jewry? What do you think? And I had the same reaction that like I get that point and I obviously understand that Topol is Jew is like is an Israeli Jew and that is a different relationship to culture, society, Judaism in general. But yeah. And this is why I come back to Anatevka is a simulacra. And if that is my frame of reference yeah, totally. for what the shtetl is like, and I've never thought to dispute the fact that Topol is an authentic Eastern European shtetl Jew while others might disagree, is my, you know, foundation of my own culture really based in authenticity? Or is it based on images upon images upon images that maybe don't give a truly authentic view, despite how outwardly authentic it might seem? Thoughts? Right. Well, I'd be interested. Do you know when that interview was given with that film critic? Recently, it was like, it was made, it was for compiled were like filmed for the movie. It wasn't like an archival thing from when the original Fiddler movie came out. It was for the documentary itself, I believe. Right. And this is an older gentleman. Older gentleman, yeah. Jewish film critic from the States, I believe. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that it's a there is that kind of cultural element of, you know, if your grandparents were shtetl jews and in his case probably his States. parents i would say because he's old enough his that parents, it might have been right. his parents so, themselves yeah so when you have such a closeness to that you know culture and that, that kind of person i can totally understand that i can totally understand that criticism and he's probably right but i think it's the same question as like doing fiddler on the roof in japan with a japanese cast where there's just like 
Popol's performance is so just uninhibited. Like I think it's he, there's no denying that Topol knows what he's talking about. I also, you know what? I'm actually, I think the, well, because I wonder, I don't know enough about Topol to speak on this properly, but I would, I wonder, because I mean, he was, yes, he is Israeli, but he was around before Israel was Israel. Yes. And so I, I wonder how true that actually is. Like, I, I do, I wonder where Topol's family is from, because my guess would be that they're probably Ashkenazi. Like, I, I, like, and I, I think this was, this, I'm struggling to remember the details and RIP Topol, we lost him this past year, but, RIP, yeah. but yeah, I believe he was of Russian shtetl descent, I think. He right. came to Israel very young and therefore himself was disconnected. Right. If he, and I don't know where he came from immediately, if it was would have been from Russia directly into Israel. But right. I don't know if he was specifically born there. Should have looked all these things up, I guess, since I knew we were going to have a conversation of this nature. But, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but he is no, but authentically that, Israeli. My point, through through. Yes. Right. No, my, my point is more so that, like, in talking about fiddler as a story about diaspora it is interesting to have an israeli jew in the lead role but i would also say that you know i think that topol is kind of indicative of that diaspora that and it's also interesting that all those care like all the actors while they're all ashkenazi are all very different actors like they they're they approach their performances very differently they give very different performances and it is a really nuanced movie in that way but that being said my point is not necessarily just topol and jewison's relationship is great because topol has such a distinct jewish you know connection but just that topol is a great actor like he's just a really wonderful actor and he's great in that role now i understand not everyone has to like topol but like I think that, you know, I had been giving the example a while back of, uh, did you see Shakespeare bashed King Lear? I did. Yeah, with Scott Wentworth. Yeah. I Yeah, so I really like that production. I, I, I love the bashed crew and as people and as artists, I think they're really great. But one thing that I thought that production did really well is that Scott Wentworth just grounded that production with such a, a presence, like a veteran presence, that it allowed the younger actors a real bar that they had to reach that they could operate pretty freely under. So that, that I thought that like having him there made everyone else better. And that's kind of how I feel on the roof, that like Topol is such an anchoring presence in that movie, just as an actor, that every time he interacts with him, I always think about that scene between him and Model the Taylor, where Model's like, please don't yell at me. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna yell at you. And like, it's just such a brilliant scene because he's just got this incredible energy and commitment to the role. And I think that's also what it comes down to is a commitment to the story. And it gets us back to our original topic, which is that like, it's so much easier, I think, to commit to a story when you understand the story. And that doesn't just come from a cultural understanding, that can come from research, 
but the cultural understanding gives you know some people a leg up on that research because you've lived it you know what i mean yeah it's funny for anyone who's has their bingo card at home i'm surprised it took us this long to mention scott wentworth who has played both shylock and yeah <laughs> and yeah we're bringing him true. Up that's so true i had forgotten about that you're right <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah, well, notable, notable non-Jewish Tevya and Shylock, and yeah. a good King Lear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked his King Lear; it was really good. Okay, we, this is getting so long. There's three last <laughs> plays that I feel like we could mention. Okay. I'll maybe kind of lob it to you, just how much you even have to say about them, or we can move past them. So Mackenzie really wanted me to talk about Parade. I don't know how much you know about the musical Parade. But yeah, I know. I mean, I don't know a ton about it, but I mean, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, it's the story of Leo Frank, who was a Jewish man in the South in the, yeah, in the 1910s, I believe, who yeah. was lynched, accused of murder, and kind of sparked the founding of the Ku Klux Klan, pretty much was. Yes. And so there's a recent no. production that just happened like this past year on Broadway, maybe is even still going with Ben Platt and yeah, Michaela Diamond. And I believe this has been marketed as the first time that both the leads Leo Frank and Lucille Frank are played by Jewish actors. And yeah. it's kind of interesting that this is like, they've had multiple productions as plays the first time that's been the case. I'm going to, I'm going to level with you. I don't know a lot about this show. I've never listened to the music. I know a few of the songs. I've never seen a production of it. I have a hard time having a strong opinion about this. I don't know if there's anything you'd like to say. Uh, <laughs> this is basically funny because I actually I've brought this up into the conversation yeah. because he loves his musicals. <laughs> I have very, I don't have much to say about Parade. I will say I did have one, like what, one of the main reasons that I have any connection to it at all is because I did have a very distinct anti-Semitic incident occur when I was I, in theater school, I had performed a song from Parade mm -hmm. and I was like, whoa, okay. And so that was like one of my foundational memories of Parade. I will say very famously, I think he won a Tony for it, Brent Carver originated the role of leo frank and like come on like brent carver is awesome he's brent carver canadian guy like i would never argue against brent carver playing any role because i love brent carver also rest in peace but i will say i think just like it's the same thing where brent carver did a wonderful job and i mean like i've listened to his cast recording of this show many times i think he did a beautiful job but there is something really exciting about seeing two Jews play Jews. Like, I, I think that's what it comes down to. Even if one of them is Ben Platt. Even if, yeah, exactly. <laughs> even if one of them is Ben Platt. But yeah, like, I, I, I have to say, like, I think that there, I, I do really get, it, there's just a pride that comes with it. That's not necessary for the theater going experience. But like, genuinely, I, when I see those two people who have a certain look that's been, you know, discouraged for a long time, a lot of Jews have felt the need to change their appearance, change their names, that these are two actors who have Jewish features, Jewish names, who are playing Jews to great acclaim. And that is, there's a lot of pride associated with that. I'm not saying that it's the way it has to be, but I mean, it warms my heart. Like, I think that it is a really, it's a really exciting thing as a Jewish creator to see that. I, and I mean, but it was the same thing with Indecent. Like, I, I really, like when I watched Indecent live, 
by the end of it, I was just sobbing because I was so proud. Like I was just really proud to be Jewish and really proud to see my heritage, even though I didn't have a super strong, like a, a Ashkenazi, but beyond that, like I'm not, my my family's not from Poland. Like, you know, I was just really proud to see the Yiddish language and to see Jews represented in such a beautiful and sensitive way on stage. And I mean, I think that's what it comes down to, these questions of representation, is that feeling of going, like, that's like my ancestors would be so happy to see this, that we've reached this point, that it's not like there's going to be riots in the streets if a non-Jewish actor plays Leo Frank, but it's nice. Like, it's, yeah. it really is nice. It's funny that you say riots in the streets, because maybe you heard about this too, but... And oh. funny is probably the wrong introduction, but at the first preview of yeah. Parade, the neo-Nazis had a protest in front of the theater. And yes. yeah, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Well, and all the like. more reason, right? Like, it's, yeah, it's bad. I mean, like, but I, I would say, like, it's all the more reason, like, Jews for our whole history have stood in the face of oppression and been resilient and being able to display that in such a public way, I just think it's a beautiful thing. I mean, to stand in the face of hate and to be able to tell this story about a Jewish man who is persecuted because of his religion and race, like, and to hear the Shema at the end of that play, as tragic as that scene is, I mean, like, it just makes me really proud because it's just, again, we're saying, you know, we're not going to kowtow to hate. We're not going to kowtow to fear. Like it's, this is who the Jewish people are. This is what we do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fair. All right. In the spirit of lightning rounding these, let's maybe I, move on. Since yeah. It doesn't sound like either of us have much more to add about parade, but let's go. No, from, <laughs> let's very briefly go from Leo Frank to Anne Frank, because in several of those other, Earlier, I don't know if you have a lot to say about this, and we could totally move on from it if you don't, but in m more than one of those earlier episodes that prompted this one, I went on a tangent about the play The Diary of Anne Frank by Francis Good Goodrich and Albert Hackett, largely because it factors into my personal like doctoral research, so I spent a lot of time reading about oh, right. this. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's an interesting, you know, circumstance where we have, I don't know how much you know about this, but there was a famous instance in the, you know, dramatization of the diary where there was a big lawsuit blow up between this one playwright named Meyer Levin, who was an early champion of the diary, who wanted to write the play version. And he had a deal with Otto Frank and he was given the reins to do it. But then the producers didn't like his version and went with this goyish mm. couple that wrote the screenplays for The Thin Man and It's a Wonderful Life instead. And gotcha. yeah, and, the, and the, a lot of the discourse, whether the extent to which it's true or not, a lot of the discourse is that Meyer Levin's version was very Jewish and particularly Jewish. And what the Hackett's did right. is that they did a good job of universalizing the story that they, and, you know, all right. of the Jewish scholars that I read all hate that they did that, but, but me being me and with all the other opinions that I voiced here, I kind of really love the play, The Diary of Anne Frank. I think it's weird for a lot of reasons that I'm never going to have a platform to really yeah, fully yeah. get into. But I think <laughs> they did a good job of like, really finding the beating heart of this 
of what it is that Americans can relate to about the story in a way that I don't think the Meyer 11 version, which is hard to find and I have not read myself, but I don't think would have done a good job of capturing. Right. Any thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would say on the one hand, I've only seen the play once. Mm -hmm. I've read the book, obviously, but I've only seen the play once. It was with, I think, Sarah Farb, actually. It was at Stratford, played Mm -hmm. Anne Frank. So Jew, Jewish actress in the role, but it was not a fully Jewish cast. And I mean, like, I think The Diary of Anne Frank is an incredibly important book. I think that the play is fine. I don't have anything against it. Personally, I just really don't like Holocaust, like, dramatizations. Yeah. I find it to be trauma porn, mm-hmm. like, I, in many ways, despite the fact that like, that's why I think I make a distinction between the book and the play, because the book is a primary document. Yes. Like, the book is actually, like, that's a, a firsthand account, and it's really important. And, I mean, you know, the discussion of representation of the Holocaust is a whole different discussion. Part of the reason that the Diary of Anne Frank is so important is because it was the, one of the first books that introduced the American and North American population to very immediately to the horrors of the Holocaust. Mouse is another very important one, which is, although it is a graphic novel, it is a firsthand account. Mm -hmm. And it's a a firsthand account of a firsthand account. So it's about post-memory and handing it from one generation to the next. So it is interestingly different from something like Anne Frank, yeah. Absolutely. And like to everyone listening, if you haven't read Mouse, read Mouse. It's extraordinary. It's very intense, but it's really brilliant. So I think that the Diary of Anne Frank as a historical document is really important. I I just worry about dramatizations of stories like that. There's tons that like, I think Schindler's List exists as one of the better examples and something like, you know, like Boy in the Striped Pajamas exists as something as one of the worst examples oh, really? of like how these stories can be skewed. Well, Boy in the Striped Pajamas is just also not, the film is just not really accurate. Um, yeah, like it's yeah, just not a very historic. while watching a movie, oddly enough. I'm not saying it's, I, it's I, I know, not I, a good movie. I'm just saying it's not a good account of the Holocaust. I, I and that's part of the reason that I think it's not, like, that's why I would say that it's trauma porn. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just using this horrific, horrible event to provoke tears without really taking into account the historical accuracy actually telling a legitimate story. Diary of Anne Frank doesn't do that. Diary of Anne Frank basically tells an accurate account. That being said, you know, I talk about this with my students all the time. Any kind of adaptation is going to have the writer's opinions imbued into it. And when it's the, when it's non-Jewish writers, it just colors the story. Like it just, it, it changes the way the story is told. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it's different. And and that's why, like, I would say go with the primary document as opposed to the secondary source. I think it's a fine play. And if people like it, great. And, like, definitely when I saw it when I was in high school, I was, like, by the end, I was like, oh, they're going to make it. (laughs) You know, despite the fact that, you know, we all know how the story ends. Uh, And so, yeah, I just, I think Holocaust literature and especially Holocaust plays are really difficult Uh and it is so difficult to do them without 
going into the realm of like i don't watch i just really don't like to watch movies about the holocaust the one that i really liked recently was jojo rabbit Mm -hmm. but that like it was removed enough that like you know you're not dealing with concentration camps right like that that the story was about something i I don't want to get like i want to be careful with my words here but it was just a unique perspective that I had not seen before, as opposed to something like Schindler's List, which undeniably is a great movie, but I have a very hard time watching just because I just think like, why would I want to re- like relive, like, not relive this, but like, why would I want to kind of immerse myself into this when it's so horrible and traumatic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just things like that. So yeah, I think Diary Van Frank, great. If you like it, great. Not really for me. But I don't have any, like, they're working off of the primary text. So, you know, it, it is yeah. what it is. And there's so many other things I could say about this. I think a yeah. lot of Jewish scholars, especially the ones who hate the play, also sometimes turn their guns not on Anne Frank herself, but on the popularity of Anne Frank in American Holocaust right. education. Because at the right, end of the day, right. she is herself at a remove from the, yes, she died in the concentration camp, but the book ends before she gets there. And as a result, right. a lot of scholars do see it as a sanitized view of the Holocaust. That's like, she's a teenager, just like yeah. you and me, as opposed to really getting into the yeah. drudgery of what it entailed. And yeah, there's- a- I always laugh at the bit where Justin Bieber said that Anne Frank would have been a believer. And I was yeah. like, he's probably not wrong. Not like, wrong. It seems <laughs> like a strange thing to say that annex in Amsterdam, but sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, she was a teenage girl. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Like... All right. Last play, I guess we will talk about because when I mentioned this to you, it piqued your interest. Oklahoma. So. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear why you are interested in this. Yeah. So we did a, in this, I don't consider this one of the main episodes of the cup that prompted this episode, but it's one that came into my mind while I was brainstorming this. And because we did a review of the Hugh Jackman, Trevor right. Nunn directed production from 1999. Ah. And. Yeah, it's, it's a classic. It's sort of, if you want to engage with Oklahoma, watch that one. And absolutely, we had a discussion in that review about the problematic nature of the character of Ali Hakim, this Persian right. peddler who is embroiled in the comic B-plot. And yes. we had this whole conversation about, you know, is this, you know, this Persian stereotype? Should we play? And like, I was the fourth to speak on that panel. And I said, Persian stereotype? I get that the text insists that he's Persian, but where I'm sitting, this is a Jewish yeah. stereotype. And a yeah, Jewish yeah. stereotype pretending to be a Persian stereotype. And yet written Absolutely. by two Jews, Rogers and Hammerstein, who and my perspective, I will say, my perspective was color very much by I had never seen Oklahoma prior to doing that review. And I watched the production. I was called in from standby. I wasn't even supposed to be on that panel, but you know, somebody dropped out and I was called in from standby the last minute. So I was like watching that production and the like five minutes after it ended, I was in the Zoom room doing the review. So it was really like crazy in my head, like right there. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I had read no scholarship yeah. on this play. I had no prior, I knew the one title song that everybody knows, but other than that, I knew nothing about Oklahoma going in. And the ending of Oklahoma short-circuited my brain, as right. you can hear me go over in that <laughs> review. It's not the space we're here. But like hearing all this conversation about what do we do with the Persian stereotype that is Ali Hakim? How do we revise this for productions today? I'm like, 
I don't think this is a Persian stereotype. I think this is a Jewish stereotype. And now I've had more time to reflect and learn more about this play since then. And I, in the course that I TA'd at University of Toronto, Mississauga, your old program, I had the privilege of hearing the wonderful Larry Switsky do a great lecture on Oklahoma, oh. and the history of the Golden Age oh, musical, which I wish I had heard prior to doing that review because he has some great perspective and knowledge on this. And he mentioned the fact that the thing that I thought I had noticed, this weird thing that they claim he's Persian, but he seems a lot more Jewish, that was very much through and through how the Jewish authors of this musical yeah. view, they related to him. I think, I don't remember if it was Rogers or Hammerstein, whichever one writes the books, I, I'm not a musical guy, but whichever one writes the books, like referred to him as, I think it might be Hammerstein, but I don't know, referred to him as like this is me in this play that it's my Ali Hakim and who I would be in this community and, right. and at the same time like I think that contextualizes a lot of this but there's two interesting things about this is that the play ends with him being forced literally at gunpoint to be integrated into this community by he marries yeah. the, char the side character of Gertie after you know Annie and Will Parker wind up together and so he marries Gertie at gunpoint. For some reason, all of these white Oklahoman fathers really want all their daughters to marry the one person of color they know, which is strange. <laughs> I never quite understood that. But yeah, so he has to give up his peddler ways. He's going to open a store and settle in Oklahoma with Gertie. But the second thing is that, and this is something that Larry Switsky really brought to my attention that I wouldn't have noticed before, is that the title song, Oklahoma, is prefaced with the stage direction of the libretto that the whole company sings. But when you think about it, what's going on in the plot, there are two people who are obviously missing from this whole company because they enter later in that scene. And one of them is Judd, the villain of the yeah. story, whose name also means Jew in German, which is, we could unpack that, but <laughs> something else we could think about. Yes, but. Yeah. but also Ali Hakim is missing, and we know he's missing because he enters later in the scene and clearly wasn't present for the wedding song the song that is an anthem yeah. of nation building that so yes. so Larry did a good job of pointing out that you know for all of the pomp and circumstance this play puts forward about unity and nationhood and statehood it only works if certain people are excluded from it or forcibly integrated into it yes so that's really, really interesting. Yeah, these are complicated thoughts about this complicated character. What's your relationship to Oklahoma and Ali Hakim in particular? Any Anything you'd like to comment on or add or something that's been provoked by any of this? So I'll just say my relationship to Oklahoma, I'm also not a big musical guy, but when I was a little boy, when I was like six or seven years old, I had a full cowboy outfit and I would prance about the house singing everything's up to date in kansas city i loved will parker and i was obsessed with the movie actually which is a great movie and also with the hugh jackman version part of the reason that it was so present in our house is that my mother who is also a professor at ut this is her field so so jews in popular culture especially kind of early 20th early to mid 20th century uh, popular culture so we're looking at a lot of broadway musicals and, and she has a whole chapter in her book making americans jews in the broadway musical about oklahoma and so she is actually a much better person to talk about this than i am but one of the things that i will say that's interesting about that era of 
kind of American popular culture is this idea of alienation in the American dream. Another really, really fascinating and good example of this is Superman. The idea of hidden difference and being able to fit in and assimilate into an American culture and uplift an American culture despite your difference. And I think that character, and there's like that character of, is it Hakeem? He's Ali Hakeem. Am I saying that right? Or Hakeem, that character is not a standalone character. That kind of character appears in so many musicals of that era for that reason of highlighting the idea of difference and assimilation within American culture, because sometimes it's, you know, there, there are not necessarily super sensitively, but you might see a, you know, a Chinese character who fills the same role because it's about assimilation. It's about how do, you know, people of different races, immigrants, you know, how do you fit into this idea of the American dream? Oklahoma as a play is, is so much about the American dream and manifest destiny and all of these kind of huge themes that are central to the American experience. The question that arises of, well, what if you're not American or what does it mean to be American? Remembering, of course, that this like this era of musical theater, that golden age of musical theater, all of those actors and writers would have started in vaudeville, which was a Basically, not, not, I mean, like, I don't want to say it was exclusively Jews, but there were a lot of Jews in vaudeville, you know, like that was kind of because we couldn't do anything else. Like that was, you know, show business was one place that we could find success. And so a lot of those, excuse me, a lot of those tropes and things are built out of, I, I mean, actually, one thing that I will say about this, I think I have to look it up because I don't want to be wrong about this, but Mandy Patinkin. And yes, we've gotten to Mandy Patinka. Get your bingo. He's got a wonderful, yeah, yeah, we're done. He's got a wonderful, is it in here? I can't remember. He's got a wonderful album called Mama Lotion. Okay, you mentioned this. Uh, have you heard Mama Lotion? Was, I have not listened to I'm obsessed with it. You mentioned it during the Indecent review, how this, this Yiddish album he does. Yeah. Yeah, so Mandy Patinkin has an album called Mama Lotion, which in Yiddish means mother tongue. And he sings like a number of classics from the American song, but like, you know, American standards from the American songbook and from Broadway. So he does, you know, very famous. He does Maria from A Side Story and he does, uh, what is it called? An American Dream by Simon Garfunkel. Just like take me out to the ball game. And one of the things that you realize listening to it is how much Jewish tradition underscores a lot of American popular culture that a lot of these songs come from klezmer chord progressions and things like that, that a lot of musical theater comes from those more Eastern European Ashkenazi traditions. And so while I know this is not about Ali Hakim specifically, so much of the American Jewish experience, especially in the early 20th century, was about finding your place within the American dream. Waiting for Lefty is another great example of this, actually. At, it's unsurprising, once you have that historical context, that these Jewish writers would write, basically, as you said, like write themselves into the shows as this othered character, because there's a self-consciousness to 
buying into the culture in the same way that you know the Gershwins wrote half of like the most famous Christmas carols of all time. That there's always going to be a a sense of this is for them, not for me. Oh, I think did we do it? Did we solve the problem of Jewish representation in theater? And- oh my god! If we didn't, we have solved it. Almost three hours. Jeez, I think. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you know we agreed about some things we disagreed about others we i this was a very nourishing conversation i'm happy to leave it at that if you are i don't know how you feel any yeah. last thoughts or no i mean it's so much fun i just am really grateful to be able to have this conversation i mean i think that it's a really important conversation and it's a conversation that as we've said is so challenging and it has to continue happening but the fact that it's happening at all is a really great and gratifying thing and it's you know these conversations are steps towards are steps towards representation and this kind of idea of reconciliation and just a greater understanding of why these things are important. So I'm just really glad that we get to have it. Yeah, I concur. It's been so I've been happy to have you have this conversation with you and the fact that I keep coming back to points you raised like over two years ago now in one episode and all of these <laughs> other episodes. I'm glad we finally got the space to just actually have these conversations, talk this through. Maybe we didn't resolve anything, yeah. but in the Talmudic tradition, maybe that's all right. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, yeah. And like, as I hope you know, even when we do disagree, you are someone whose ideas I always find compelling. You are a very eloquent speaker, very informed about what you're talking about. And I'm always happy to have these tough conversations with you. So you're welcome back anytime if there's something else of this nature you want to discuss. I really appreciate that. And I, yeah, I feel exactly the same. I appreciate it, Ryan. Yeah, I always appreciate having this conversation with you as well. It's, uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure. Well, likewise. So I guess that's it for us. Before we go, plug your personal social media, your company, Dandelion Theater, and any shows you have coming up. This episode will probably go out mid to late June on our docket. So Fringe is still on the horizon. Perfect time. Let us know what you got. Yeah, that's awesome. So we've got a few things coming up. Yeah, so my my Instagram is at mackerman12, which I would love some followers from that. But my company is Dandelion Theater. You can find us at dandelionTheaterTO.com, at dandelionTheaterTO on Instagram, or Dandelion Theater on Facebook. Yeah, Dandelion has got some great stuff coming up. We've got well, our In Bloom Festival will be over by the time this episode airs, I suppose. But we'll be at the Hamilton Fringe Festival performing new Canadian play by this guy called Death of Love Story. It's a nice short show. It's a kind of existential dramedy about two exes who wake up to find themselves stuck together in purgatory. And that will have a Toronto run as well at the beginning of August. So stay tuned for details about that. And then independently, I'm producing a show for Salt Theatre called The Bad Mitzvah that's going to be in Toronto Fringe. It's written by Stephanie Zeit. It's directed by William Dow. It's it's a really, really wonderful play about, about a bat mitzvah, but it's really about kind of womanhood and the idea of growing up and what is sacrificed when you are forced to grow up. And it's a really wonderful show. We've got a great cast on it as well. And I really look forward to seeing that go up soon. Great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing as much or all of those as I'm able to see, mm-hmm. which is definitely Toronto for William Dow. He directed The Boy Who Cried. Yeah, I hope so. That, that Boy Who Cried was my favorite yes, thing I saw at Fringe last year, or definitely one of them. So, you know, great, great person. Will is a, he's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. director. And yeah, like as a, for 
all the wonderful emerging directors in the city. I'm really, really stoked to be able to work with Will. I've known Will for a long time, almost 10 years. This is the first time we've gotten to work together. So it's been a real, a real privilege. That's amazing. All right. Well, thank you for plugging all of that. No need to follow me personally, but if you like what we do here at Cup of Hemlock, if you want, if you like these kinds of conversations, there's certainly more of them on the horizon. So you can follow us at COH Theater on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are Cup of Hemlock Theater on YouTube. Maybe that's where you're watching this. You might be listening to this as an audio only podcast, the Cup of Hemlock Theater podcast. Follow, subscribe, like, share, comment if you want to get in on this discussion. We'd love to hear what hopefully mostly nice people have to say about this if you're not a nice person maybe we don't want to hear from you but challenge our ideas but you know anti-semitism yeah. obviously will not be tolerated in the comment section of this episode so true i personally i'll find you <laughs> yeah <laughs> if we're prick do we not bleed <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right take care everyone this has been a wonderful conversation stay healthy stay safe and we will see you in the next one cheers L'chaim. Cheers. L'chaim. <laughs>